I have to say it's wonderful to hear that music again. It's been a long time now. It's uh, nearly two months since uh, I last put out an episode, which was the uh, Christmas uh, award ceremony, the uh, Golden Puddings, as uh, they will be known from now on. And uh, I just burnt myself out. I did five episodes in December and... There's a lot of work that goes into doing these, into organising them, into setting up for the interviews, doing the interviews, and then subsequently editing them into uh, what you listen to on uh, on these podcasts. So uh, five in a month was a lot of work, and, and I really, really did uh, burn the candle at both ends. In fact, I didn't burn the candle at both ends. I set a flamethrower to it at both ends. So I, I needed a break. Break. And uh, but we're back, we're back, and I've got uh, a fantastic uh, lot of guests uh, lined up already. Um, I've got four already booked in. I know who the next four guests are after that, which is going to take me to around summertime already before I uh, start looking at other people. And uh, going to try a couple of different things. I am going to have an historian on who um, had a dabble in wargaming, but doesn't do it regularly um i've got fingers crossed if i can make it happen i've got an absolute legend of the hobby coming on uh, that i'm really looking forward to so keep your eyes out for that in a few weeks time and then in between that there's going to be our usual mix of manufacturers and painters and rules authors and uh, big gamers and you name it they're all coming on so um we're ready to go again. The wheels are started turning on the Yorkshire Gamer podcast machine. And uh, we're here with episode number 39. Uh, I hope you're going to enjoy this one. This is with a chap called Martin Kelly. And uh, Martin uh, lives in the United States. And uh, I try to get as many people as I can from around the world and i've got a couple of um absolutely superb episodes coming up later in the year from places that you wouldn't think of as wargaming hubs so i'm looking forward to those but uh, back to martin i spotted him on uh facebook doing uh, lots of big italian wars games which immediately drew my eye at conventions in the us so i thought gotta get this guy on uh we can talk obviously about the italian wars we can talk about uh, conventions in the United States, how they differ from the UK, and of course, the difficulties of putting a big game on, not just for your mates, but for lots of members of the public who are coming to a show to uh, to play a game. And uh, I have to say, I do find this quite funny. I have tried to get a lot of uh, US uh, people on this uh, podcast and uh, never quite come off um i had a manufacturer who couldn't quite get the tech right um i've had quite a few manufacturers who just don't get back to me at all and um you know it's i want to have american people on talking about american games so the first time i tried that i got john lander on uh of course john is uh expat uh, we managed to get a real American on with Jason Weiser, uh, bless him, and uh, then uh, I thought, great, I've got someone here, Martin, he'll come on, got in contact with him, and he said, yeah, no problem, so I'd love to do the podcast, um, I'm from Solihull in the West Midlands in the UK, so um, 
Uh, we're going to America to talk to a Brit. Um, so, sorry, Americans, but if you don't answer your emails, you don't get back to me, you don't get on the show. It's as simple as that. Uh, so, uh, Martin puts on these great games, and I just want to say uh, before we speak to Martin that uh, I think we should all give a little bit of praise to people like Martin who put these big games on. Often they organise them, do all the painting, do all the terrain themselves. It's something that I do, and I just think that, you know, when you're playing those games at a convention or you, you're walking past them at a show, just have a think about how much work's gone into it and maybe say thank you to um, whoever's running it. I think that they would be extremely happy with that. There's, uh, these, uh, I've had quite a few naysayers on uh, on the Facebooks re recently, and I really don't think that is the uh, the majority of the hobby. In fact, I know it isn't. Uh, and just saying to somebody, you know what, mate, that's an awesome game, or that's an awesome set of figures, or... That's just a brilliant effort to get that on the table, can make somebody's day, and it's a lot better than saying, your colours are wrong. Oh, you've put that machine gun upside down. So, let's have some positivity in the hobby, please. Uh, and uh, we're going to start with positivity with this interview with Martin. So, a couple of hours, again, as usual, sit back, get this in a cup of tea, uh, fat rascal from uh, Betty's and uh, Jobs are good and so without further ado here's the interview Well hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome back to the interview section of the Yorkshire Gamer podcast and it's been a while, uh, I've not done one since the, the 5 in December so um, hopefully I can remember what I'm going to do uh, but if I don't I'm sure my guest will help me out because I'm sure he's done loads of, of podcasts. <laughs> so after my break I was fully rested and uh, so was the Yorkshire Airlines Pigeon so it was time once more to go hey, up and away to the USA. And my guest today is a proponent of the big games, and it's huge battles on huge tables with large numbers in, uh, involved that this guy is all about. We all dream of those Polish wings whose ours piling across six foot of teddy bear fur or a 196-figure pipe block. Yes, I did say 196, and this man knows how to get them on the table. His latest game, set in modern Afghanistan, looks amazing, and it's going to be another great addition to the great games my guest has put on on conventions in the US. So let's delve into the world of Fallen and Historicon and discuss what makes a big game at a show a great game and what the organisers of these games do before you sit down in front of them to play their game. Now, I have mentioned it before, and I have noticed a lot of teddy bear fur being used in my guest games, and we're going to check today that that's ethically sourced. So, let's stretch our hand across the ocean in friendship and speak to the latest guest on the Yorkshire Gamer podcast and give a re big welcome to Martin Kelly. Hello, Martin. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, mate. Very well. Is, uh, is this your first podcast? Yeah, it's the first one, so a little intimidated. Oh, don't worry too much, mate. Don't worry too much. You, uh, you've listened to a few of the Yorkshire Gamer ones of the past, so you've got an idea what's coming up. Yeah, I've used them for the uh, the painting, sitting down for two or three hours. It's uh, good to have in the background. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good uh, it's a good background thing. I'm I'm told by a number of people. So uh, so welcome on board. Uh, but before you get comfortable, Martin, I don't want you you know relaxing too much. Um, it's time for the four minute challenge, and that's what we do with all our guests when we get started. Uh, and that's just an opportunity for you to kind of summarise as for for the audience your sort of introduction to the hobby up to where you are now and uh, the challenge is to try and get it in in four minutes uh, so have you done a bit of preparation i've done some preparation but we'll see how it goes oh brilliant well my normal timer and alarm thing aren't working so i'll give you a wave on camera when you've got 30 seconds left uh and then it'll just have to be me telling you to shut up rather than dr egan okay <laughs> okay so when you're ready we shall start now well, I, I grew up in, in Birmingham, England, uh, near a place called Solihull. And as a young kid, I can't remember the age when I started, probably six, seven, I got some Airfix Napoleonics and then started making um, the Airfix uh, World War II tanks and infantry. And it was those days when you used humbrol paints and a, a terrible brush. So if you were lucky to get pink near the, flape, the face and uh, the biggest challenge was avoiding getting it on the carpet and getting into trouble so that's where i started um got the the old famous books the uh the bruce quarry world war ii and the napoleonic bruce oh, quarry oh, brilliant. and that was uh, the stock items and then got into the miniature war gamings i think it was issue one in 1982 when i saw it at wh smith's and really just played with some friends from school um then i had um an uncle who lived at home with my nan and granddad. And he was in the ATC and did a lot of wargaming there. So when we used to go to round to my nan's, um, he had a cupboard in the spare room where all his leftover stuff was. And we used to play with that. We obviously didn't play with his main stuff. But that got us into the modern micro armor. We were doing the 1985 Cold Wars and we played a, a ton of that with the old war game research group rules and then Ooh. challenger two. So um, that's really what we got into. And then an extension of that, doing some modern naval with a, a rule set called warship commander, which was <laughs> hugely <Rumble> complex, <laughs> which is sort of, I've kept that interest and got into harpoon five now. Mm. So um, not a game, not a pickup game. Um <laughs> So one thing my uncle did was paint um, up for Christmas a couple of old guard battalions and some chasseurs cheval um, and an artillery battery. I think they were minifigs figures. So those were my first introduction to actually owning some metal figures, and his painting was way above mine. Um, so we used to play on, I think it was a four-foot-by-five-foot green board that was you know, just painted with some emulsion. So that's what we played on. When I went to university, really, the hobby stopped for me. I was involved in playing rugby. Then I, after that, I moved around the world with business. To, to you know, University was at Bath. I was in London, Hull, Staley Bridge, um, then to Italy, South Korea, and then across to Philadelphia. So it's not until my 50s that I really picked up the hobby again. And I got back in in 2017. And my first figures I bought were some, I was just amazed at the standard of figures these days, um, some Calpe figures of Saxons, oh, yes. Yes, which lovely. are truly beautiful figures. Um, 
white on white is probably not the best introduction to get back into in the painting, but the paints had really improved as well. So I ended up putting the, the white on white aside for a bit and then got some steel fist gendarmes, which again are beautiful figures and got into that. Um, then really met some friends at Historicon, got back into that. Um, over a couple of years, I got 850 figures, um, did the Battle of Garigliano mm-hmm. at a club, was planning to do that for a Historicon. Then COVID broke out, plans changed, um, allowed me to do the Battle of Bicoca, which is, I think, 1,600 figures and the, a, a Cossack project, the Kelminsky uprising. So that's where I got back in. I'll leave it at there and we'll probably delve into deeper stuff later. Absolutely superb. Absolutely superb. Bang on time. Um, I'm not suggesting that you've got a timer in front of you, but it was very good. <laughs> yeah, I've got a timer, I've got to be honest. Oh, fantastic. Well, that, that's lovely That's lovely to hear. And um, one of my previous guests, an old wargaming uh, friend of mine, Stephen Barker, who was on a few episodes ago, he's a very similar to yourself in that he'd had that immersion into uh, war games fairly earlier on. And then university job etc kind of drifted away from it and he's come back to it in recent years so what what kind of the what kind would you say you mentioned a couple there but what what would you say the big changes are from when you stopped all those years ago to to suddenly coming back into it there's some things that changed in hobby and some things that obviously changed for me i i think um financially i'm actually able to afford some metal figures now <laughs> which, yeah that's always a good one um so <laughs> You know, growing up with plastic, it was always the dream to have a few metal units. And when my uncle painted those couple of um, old guard battalions, they were like the pride of the collection. Um, Not only just because they were very well painted for the time, but also because they were metal. So that's changed the the quality of the figures. I mean, I remember having a couple of minifigs figures. They were great at the time, but you do a, a Calpe sculpt, um, or a steel fist sculpt, um, and the variation of the poses and that sort of realism. So that's changed. And really the paints. I mean, just I, I never want to see a humble can of paints again. Um, <laughs> you know, I use Vallejo now, and they're just a joy because you can, you can put a coat of paint on, then it's dry, so you can put another uh, tone over the top of it immediately and then go on to a different colour. You don't have to wait overnight for things to dry. Yeah, I think um, the, the, you, you kind of encapsulated there some of the, the major things that have gone on in the hobby over recent years and those classic old units that we look at in the old magazines and old books where every single figure is the same apart from the drummer and the officer and the standard bearer. Yeah. Uh, and they're all on like a, an enamel, um, a green enamel base. That's all the same. And there's no <laughs> flocking and no terrain. Uh, great games. Uh, and, you know, I, I love looking back at those periods, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, some big changes that have gone on. You could also get anything these days. Um, yeah. Uh, for example, the Afghanistan game I was doing now, um, I try and make it look as realistic as I can. And I go online and I call up some pictures of an Afghanistan town. Mm. And I look at them and say, what haven't I got that's in this picture? Um, 
a recent one is um you know those blue rain barrels that everyone yeah. has yeah. um every house in afghanistan's got them and i thought i haven't got these so i go on to etsy or shapeways and someone's 3d printing blue rain barrels i mean it's amazing and you've got them in two days you know six dollars for 12 rain barrels <laughs> yeah it's definitely a different world and i think there'll be many many people listening to this who uh shaking at the thought of going back to home roll paints um i've got a couple of i've actually got um a guy uh, james loach who lives fairly close to me and runs the olicania blog website very very good italian was well worth looking at if you if you've not seen his oh, stuff he his blog was one of the first i looked at yeah. when um i started amazing, back into amazing it. collection and, and a very clever thing with divers we always divert on this this podcast <laughs> um but a very a very clever thing that james does is he he has like a little cap with different flags on that go over the top of the gendarme lances, so he can change the nationality just by lifting the flags off. Yeah, and I, um, I, tr- I tried that. Um, yeah, it, I, probably my skill because you've got to remember, you guys have got fifty years of skill built up here. <laughs> I'm on the fly with <laughs> like the past five years and trying to catch up quick. But I was I could never get them to. They always spun around the flagpole and ended up in a place where I didn't want them. So, yeah, I for think, my uh, Italian James board, has got some secret of doing it, and it's very, right. it's very good, and it works. It works very, very well. Um, so, where you're, you're in the United States now? Where, whereabouts did you say you were? We're, I'm in Philadelphia. And is it uh, is it work that's taking you there? Yeah, I, I move around the world with work. Um, I moved with a big company and ended up here, and. Uh, after that, I've since left them and started my own business over here. Oh, brilliant. So it looks like a fairly permanent place for you now? Uh, yeah, you'd never say forever. Never but, say uh, never. Never say yeah. never. I suppose once you get that, you get used to moving around the world. It's not such a a, a major thing. Is it? I mean, I've, I've lived in this house for nearly 30 years now, and the thought of moving... Um, fills me with dread because you know i mean the positives is that i'll find some of the figures that i thought i lost 20 years ago um you know, pack it they'll be under a box somewhere but, but the thought of moving you, out yeah, then you'll have to paint them <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, i've got plenty of that going on at the moment um, so you ended up in the in the usa with with work and um how then what was that spark that got you back into gaming well uh, one of the things I started with a, a few years before was um, just the model trains, and that's changed a lot with the, yeah. the control systems. And I, I wired up something with the signals changing as the train passes over and all that stuff. I really enjoyed the weathering of the mm. trains um, yeah. and putting graffiti on the side and, and doing all that. And then um, I think one day I just looked online at some of the figures Mm. as you do you're just browsing something and saw them so ordered a few then saw there was a convention and went to that and that's where it started went to Historicon got chatting to some people they invited me to the local club of course you turn up with no figures because <laughs> yeah. you've got nothing and uh, <laughs> that's that's where it started and that was in 2017 yeah. So are you still are you still involved with the railway model, and it's something that fasc- it's something I've not done, but it does fascinate me. Not recently. We're, I'm in a townhouse in the city, and there's limited space, yeah. so it's um, and also I would like to get back to weathering a few more rail cars and stuff like that yeah. side of it. But ever since I got back in the hobby, 
I've got into the side of the hobby where I'm doing games at the convention. And then I'm always spreadsheeting out how many units I've got to paint, yeah. how how much time <laughs> I've got. And it, 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 invariably, you spreadsheet it out up until a week before the convention. And yeah. uh, I'm st- I still order stuff like a couple of weeks before just to add to the table. So it's not being able to fit anything else in. No worries. Well, the, um, to me, the railway modelers are the very, very skilled. A lot of the stuff that you see online is, is really, really good. Um, I think they're a little bit ahead of us in terms of tech with things like the sound chips that they've got in the, in the engines and what have you. Um, but one thing that does absolutely amaze me with it is that the figures that they have are just dreadful. Yeah. <laughs> compared to compared to a War Games figure and the painting and the style, it, it, if anybody, any of the listeners remember the old Sabutio table football game, you used to get like 10 blokes or fans you'd stick in the, in the terraces and they were dreadful as well. And it doesn't seem to have improved at all. Well, there's a business there for someone because I, I think it's a reasonably large hobby. It is. It's huge. And huge. You, you don't need that many figures to have a good range. Yeah, I mean, there's a. I, I've worked most of my working life up in the Yorkshire Dales, and there's there's not that many people around. And um, in the middle of one of the villages called Bell Busk up in up above Skipton is a thing a place called Metcalf Models, who make loads of really detailed card and uh, models for different scale railways. And they're in the middle of nowhere. You know, yeah. this. Nobody near them at all, but they're <laughs> pumping this stuff out, and somebody's buying it. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. I might try some painting. I might try painting some railway engine drivers or something, and see if they sell. See if they go like <laughs> they might go like hotcakes, and I'll be uh, I'll be retiring very soon. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone's retiring on this sort of hobby. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Very true. Um, so, where, where's what's your what's your gaming experience at the moment? Then, do you have a club? Do you game at home? What do you do? I I don't have the room to game at home. We live in a, a row house, so it's like fourteen foot wide. So <laughs> you limit. It's long but wide, so you can't really yeah. fit much table space in there. So everything I do is really at the club or at the mm. convention, and there we, you know, we've got as many tables as we need there. Yeah. So what's the so what's the club that you go to, and and how's that set out so organised? It's a there's various groups that turn up at a, a local church. It's a, it's oh, right. Very disorganized, um, but it, it just seems to work. So yeah. there's several individual groups that affiliate with each other. Um, right. And we just go along there. Um, typically, you put your game in on the list about a month before, and then people just turn up and join in whatever game they want. Um so there's normally about six games in the morning and six games in the afternoon. Right. So it's like a, so I suppose that's like a mini convention every every other week. Then is it? It's it's not. We do it once a month, so it's not once that frequent. Um, but yeah. yeah, it's it's sort of similar to a mini convention, but a little more informal. And do you have um, any? I suppose they're called hobby stores in 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 the US. Do you have any local? gaming stores nearby that are, have tables uh, to, to use if you need them? There are. A, a lot of people do go to those. Um, they tend to be more on the fantasy side of things yeah. or the, the big games like Team Yankee or Flames of War, um, that side of things. Um, I used to go, they did something on a Thursday evening, but 
to carry out a load of figures just for that an evening mm. just doesn't work for me. So I've really concentrated on the once once a month event, and I typically try and put on a a game there every third one. So once a quarter, I try and put something on. Right, and and the rest of the time, then would your group of friends? It would be like, oh, it's your term next week, and no, yeah. or next next month, and you'll do another one, and then I'll do that one. Yeah, it's it's more people stepping up and saying, "Oh, I've got something this time. I'll do it," rather than being told, you know, that's oh, the there's, way. there's no, <laughs> yeah. there's no, as we say in the UK, volum bullying. No, uh, which is like volunteered but being bullied into volunteering. <laughs> there's less of that. Uh, people just, it's, <laughs> I think people don't want to do it every time, but they do yeah. want to do it um, periodically. Yeah. Um... So looking through your your social media and stuff, you, you you're on Facebook. Did you do anything else like Twitter or um, Instagram or anything like that? I I really don't like Facebook that much, <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of hobby stuff on there, so I'm sort of drawn to that. Yeah. Twitter I've never really got into. Um, I do have a a blog post. Um, oh, which right, yeah. Uh, yeah. amazes me, um, continuously <laughs> amazes me. Um, it's a, I'm going to plug it shamelessly. Yeah, no, get shame, get, we're all uh, shameless plugging on this show. <laughs> it's a blog post called collegeofkings.com, yeah. uh, which is the College of Kings was what Napoleon set up as a, after the, he took apart the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, what I do on that is it's, re- it's really started it more for me to remind me of what I'd done. If I put on a battle, I put up the order of battle there. I took photos of the game, and I continually refer back. So it was never really intended for a wide audience. But I've had a couple of very positive experiences. Um, I've had a guy at a convention, um, the the Italian Wars battle, the Battle of, um, they call it Navarra. It wasn't actually at Navarra. It's a place called Ariotta. I... did my whole explanation. And a guy was putting this on at the convention and I've never seen it done right. And I walked up to him and said, this game looks very similar to the way I put it on. And he goes, yeah, I found some guy on the internet and it turned out he'd read my blog and copied my game. Oh, Um, that's fantastic. And then I had another guy, um, he'd saw that I put on the Battle of Grigliano and he sent me an email, says, "I, I want to do that at a convention. Um, can I phone you up and chat to you about it? And I thought, yeah, it's, it's amazing that people are reading this stuff. <laughs> well, I think I think those those certainly the blogs um, are a great source of information, aren't they? I mean, you said you were inspired by James's Olakani lad uh, blog, um, and people are coming to your blog. Can you type in Battle of whatever? And if you've done a post on it, then it's going to come up and people can come in uh, and have a look at it. It's quite a um, sharing hobby. People seem to be quite happy to to give and re- you know, receive information without wanting 50 quid for it or whatever. Yeah, I don't want any money for anything. Um, but, yeah, it just surprised me. I mean, you see some of these blogs, like James's blog, over a million views. Mine's yeah. like a minute thing compared to that. I got to 20,000 the other day, so I feel quite chuffed about that. So Get down to College of Kings, everyone. Let's get it to 50,000. <laughs> I, um, I think, to be fair, the older blogs, I'm just coming up to a million um, hits on mine recently, and I think older blogs have gone through a phase where um, – 
the Russian intelligence services appear to be quite interested in them for a while. Um, I got a lot of hits from Russia and um, Ukraine before the, the current situation over there. Um, so I think, I'm not sure, what, I've had a million hits, but how many of those are real people? Or how many of them are Dmitry checking I'm not intending to invade the Baltic states uh, yeah. in my lunch hour? Well, I'm I might sure. get a couple of those because I did... Um... A couple of battles from the Kelmanitsky uprising, yeah, um, which was in 1651, and that's um, on current day Ukrainian territory. So there's very few ah. blog posts on the war in Bilozerksva <laughs> and the Berestecko. Um, so you, you search for that, you're not going to see very much other than my stuff. Ah, right. Well, um, I'm not suggesting to anyone who's listening or to yourself, Martin, to do a post on the fictitious invasion in Belarus 2024. <laughs> but I can guarantee you'll get a lot of hits from Russia if you do. Yeah. <laughs> Stay away from that. <laughs> Stay away from that big time, big, big time. It just reminds me, actually, actually when you were, uh, something you said a few moments ago, the Holy Roman Empire. I always remember my history teacher saying, it wasn't holy, it wasn't Roman, and it wasn't a bloody empire either. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how he, how they had upset him. <laughs> but, uh, Mr. Whittington, if you're still around, mate, you were the best history teacher ever. Ever, I really, really inspired me all those years ago. Well, they they did they did go around causing a lot of trouble to a lot of people. So I guess he must have yeah. crossed his path somewhere. Uh, yeah, he wasn't he wasn't impressed with them, bless him. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we'll talk quite a lot about Italian wars in in the final section and um, about some of your other games as well. Um, but if you if you had a go-to period, would it be Italian Wars or what would it be? That That's one thing with putting on games at a convention. You, you sometimes see people, they, they develop a, a good game and mm. it's fine and people enjoy it and they mm. take it along to convention after convention, which is, is absolutely fine. Um, you know, they've got a, people who love playing that and people know what they're getting into when they sign up for that. I just don't. For me, I personally don't want to be the person who lives off one game forever or one period forever. Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, I did do the Italian Wars for the convention, which we'll talk about. Mm. I, I don't want the next game that I take to be the Italian Wars. So I like okay, to spread it a, around. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting and, and valid, uh, valid point uh, to make because I, I know at one of the shows I go to, there were some guys who've got a lovely collection of um, World War One sort of desert Palestine stuff. And the first time you see it, it's like it's an amazing. And then you go back the next year and um, it's the same stuff, but everything moved around the table in a different order and then yeah. you go back the next year and it's in a different <laughs> order so i can very, very much see your point there and we'll talk very much about how um uk and uh us uh conventions differ um later on in the day but if if you is there anything that drags you you know a book or uh, anything to a particular period period in history no i mean the italian wars i got into it because i saw some beautiful figures yeah, um, there are no simple as that. figures for that period. And the, the colours and the flags. Um, so you know, I don't really want to go to something like the War of the Roses, which is a very similar yeah. period. So yeah. I moved then to the Kelmanitsky Uprising, um, which is you know only 100 years, 120 years later. But it's a completely different look 
yeah. uh, figures, you know, the more drab Cossack figures, and a completely different style of fighting where you've got more of the, the muskets. But the, a lot of it was mounted troops because mm-hmm. of the vast different distances between. So um, it's just, it's not as colorful. Um, yeah. So I just wanted something different, so I drifted into that. Um, I'm now looking at things like the um, the Battle of the Catalonian Plains in 451. Um, again, because of just vast armies, huge Hun armies and Romans and Ostrogoths and Visigoths. Um, I've bought um, a Seleucid pipe block <laughs> um, nice. just because I want to paint that up and see how I feel about it. Um, yeah. Because I could then get a massive row of pikes and, again, completely different tactics. So I, I don't want to just repeat. I want something different each time. Oh, that's, that's lovely to hear. That's a, that's a, a really uh, refreshing approach to, to, to those big games. Problem is, the problem is it means you have to keep painting figures. <laughs> well, you, yeah. Um, well, I can't say anything on that, can I? No, I never worse than me. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I don't just talk about big games. I actually just do them. That's my style as well. So uh, um, we'll draw into the end of the first section, and um, at the end of this section, I, the the bit that everyone goes through is the Venn diagram of wargaming. And I've, I haven't done this for a bit, so I'll have to look down at my notes and make sure I get the right bits. Um, so just breaking down your personal take on wargaming, really, and um, I break it down into wargamer painter collector and historian um just to see how they fit together or maybe not at all uh for you in the hobby which bits interest you the most yeah i would say that everything i do is to put on a game right yeah so i wouldn't go and research a bit of history if i wasn't putting on a game in that period yeah okay um and I wouldn't paint figures just to have them sitting on a shelf, and I wouldn't collect them just to collect them. So it's all, you know, do I enjoy the history? Do I enjoy the painting and the collecting? Absolutely, and it's all part of it. But it's yeah. all to put on a end product. That's sort of so. It, it, it that game is your is the big circle, and then where everything else is overlapping it is to get that game on the table. Yeah, and I, I don't want to be as historically accurate as as i can i'm not a historian i'm not going to go into museums and get original documents so Mm. um i I do go to historical societies and get information it's like when i'm putting on different battles for the italian wars and there was a question on this on one of the, the the facebook groups which flags do you have for the swiss I yeah. wanted to know which cantons are at which battle and in yeah. which pipe block they are. Now, <laughs> then you could argue, someone could come along and say, well, the helmets on the Swiss are wrong. Yeah, I didn't research that quite as much, but <laughs> there's little bits that interest me and I research those and try and put them into the game. Now, am I always historically accurate with everything? Absolutely not. I don't think any of us can be. Yeah, um, I, I think it's very difficult as well to... With with, I mean, I, I think I'm fairly well off in terms of resources that I can put into the game. You know, I'm I'm mid fifties. I'm close to retirement. I've paid for my house and my car, and my kids have finished university, so I've got disposable income. But even I will have one lot of Swiss, 
and that lot of Swiss will fight 1494-5 in Filnovo and 1520-odd in, in at um, Pavia. Yep. I'm not buying two different lots of Swiss just to <laughs> please Dave on the internet who goes, your helmets are wrong, mate. <laughs> and also, I've got 350 Swiss. I'm not yeah. painting another 350. Exactly. We're, we're, we're shouting from the, the same hymn sheet here, <laughs> I think, mate. Um, so when you do start research then um, into a new period, like the... the you say my, my anything other than Yorkshire Leeds language? Uh, um, did you say Kaminsky? Is that how many? Kelmanitsky, and I hope I'm saying it right. I've probably butchered yeah. that name. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I butcher it every time I do a video or anything. Um, so when you're getting into that particular period, then is it books, internet? Where, where are you going for your research? Yeah, I'm well, I'm, I'm going to the internet for research initially. Um, yeah. just to get a feel. But then I'll, I'll want some books that really study the individual battle. When I did the Battle of Riva, you know, I bought probably three books. Um, one of them was Italian. Um, the Battle of Navarra, again, well, I'll probably talk about the book later, but it's um, an Italian book. And with Google Translate on your phone these days, you can just point your phone at the book and go Italian to English and you see it on your phone. Not perfect translation, but it opens up a whole other and there was a battle on the Kelmanitsky uprising a battle called Bilazerksa which is a smaller battle um mm. actually small it's a huge number of troops but not as well known perhaps <laughs> I should say yeah. um I found one book in Polish and I actually went onto Polish websites to try and buy this and I couldn't negotiate buying it it was like five dollars to buy from Poland but you couldn't mm. negotiate your way through so I actually actually ended up going with the public enemy number one Amazon and paying 40 bucks just to get the book. Wow. So, and then I spent uh, six months with Google translate on that book because there's no, no other information in English mm. around on that. So um, yeah, I, I searched high and low for information, but I like to try and get the battle. Well, I like to understand the battle and then try and represent it on the table, which when you're, doing square tables and this battles over many kilometers you can't always do but at least you've got a basis for your representation yeah so do you enjoy um almost the challenge then of, of researching things that aren't you know easy to do if you wanted to do pavia you yeah. can get 25 30 books in english um yeah. whereas you know some of the lesser known battles you struggle i found this particularly with the garibaldi stuff i've done recently um, very little information in the English language. So do you enjoy that challenge then of digging into stuff? Yeah, I, I sometimes find with a lot of the English books um, that they propagate a false assumptions that when you research the battle, you know, everyone says this and everyone's done it this way, <laughs> therefore it must be. Um, yeah. as, as war gamers, we often believe what, you know, some guys written on the internet in five minutes and uh, mm. so I, I like to go back a little bit more not obviously not to original source text but perhaps to the the historical society of the the town where the battle's in or the museums there and look on their web pages or a book written by someone in that country um, yeah. you can get a very different perspective and that also helps you eliminate the the national bias a little bit if you've got both sides of the argument, 
So yeah. I mean, there's national bias, there's regional bias. Not that I have regional bias on this show, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> looks looks slightly worried, <laughs> but yeah. So so it's it's that challenge of putting it all together. And do you, do you deliberately pick obscure stuff, or where does it where does it come from? The I've got to do that. Or do you see a figure or a picture or what brings it? No, I mean, I've got, as I said, I've got limited experience in the hobby, so I don't yeah. want to come across any different. Um, uh, like for the Italian Wars, I write down, I've got a list of the major battles in the Italian Wars. And the first one I did was Garigliano, because I just thought that was a pretty cool battle with them coming round the side, crossing the river upstream. So I decided to do that, then research that. Then um, really started looking at which troops I'd got from Garigliano and which was the next closest <laughs> battle that I only had to paint X number of troops to get to and then move to the next one. So that I ended up at Bicocca and then to Ravenna. Uh, obviously, everyone's looking now at what can we do in uh, 2025 and there's going to be a few battles of Pavia there. Yeah, we've uh, ours is already organised or being organised at the the Royal Armouries Museum in, in Leeds, just down the road from us, has got a big pavia display with life size models of pikemen and um, a gendarme charging into the pikemen. So we're going to have a table in front of there. Um, and don't they have that really famous picture there as well yeah. for Battle of Pavia? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it just happens to be on our. What's it doing in Leeds? I've got no idea. <laughs> we, we probably stole it sometime. Probably you know Leeds United away match at Juventus or something like that. We probably stole it from a museum. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's going to be a bit of healthy competition to see who can put on the biggest game there. Oh, definitely, <laughs> definitely, and and I'll win, obviously. Uh, <laughs> We'll see. <laughs> Brilliant. So, thanks very, very much for that, Martin. That's a, a lovely little introduction there. And uh, we'll just pause the uh, episode for a second and uh, we'll be back shortly to talk about big games. Welcome back, everyone. And uh, as you all know, uh, part two is uh, the big game chat. Um, and the first question, Martin, for all my guests, everyone gets the same one, um, is what does a big game mean to you? If I say big game, what does it conjure in your mind? For me, it's 28 millimeter uh, figures. Um, you know, other people do big games in different stuff. But for me, it's 28 millimeter figures or even 40 millimeter figures. I've seen some beautiful 40s. Ooh, ooh. I've actually bought a few, um, yeah. but uh, that's for the, the future. <laughs> That's so, a different, um, different level, is 40 mil. A different yeah. level. Um, I don't think I like the bigger ones. I think they're 56. They look a bit toy soldier-ish, but um, that's just for me. Um, and then I'm looking at 1,000, 850, 1,000 figures, sort mm. of minimum to get into that big game category. Yeah. Now, I do deviate out of that, like my Afghanistan project, um, which is less figures there's probably only a couple of hundred figures there most of them civilians um <laughs> but I, I then tried to go more bigger on the the terrain even though it's yeah. only a four foot by eight foot table but also it's the size of the table um you know i'm typically running a game on a five foot by 21 foot table if i'm doing a big game or, or bigger yeah. um so that that's sort of what i put on as a big game and what I think of as a big game. Brilliant. Do you think um, time period affects 
of, of the game that you're playing can af- can affect how that definition is is looked at because you're talking about about Afghanistan and like you say it's it's kind of small squad tactics over a big area yeah I, I mean obviously that um but I've seen World War two done with on the divisional level and front level with as uh, a friend of mine who puts he must put five six hundred tanks on the table yes <laughs> so and plays doing. that through so yeah I, it does affect it, but only to a certain period. Once you get into, after the Seven Years' War, maybe it affects it. But before that, I mean, a big game's a big game. You can... It is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and what's that, What what's the thing that appeals to you about that then? You've, you've got this big table, lots of figures. What's the, what's the appeal of that compared to something uh, smaller but highly detailed? I think it's um, there's no reason you can't go detailed on a big game. Um, mm. I, I think it's the look and the, the feel of everything and trying to um, almost create a scene. I, I've seen some big games done where it's just a green cloth and a lot of figures, and that doesn't really capture the scene for me. Yeah. I think it's all about the whole, the picture. That's what I'm trying to create. And do you, do you remember... Um the time that your your brain kind of switched to the big games was it in your previous war game in life do you, do you think that's where it comes from or has something triggered it since you've come back to the hobby well you remember seeing war games illustrated and oh, yes. the big games there that's mm. that was so out of reach when you're eight nine ten years old and you can't afford you know, five metal figures. <laughs> <laughs> so there's always that there that you wished you could have that. And mm-hmm. um, coming back, uh, I don't think there's anything that particularly inspired me. I just like the look of a big battalion or a big pipe block. And you can't just have one. You've got to have several. So it just morphs <laughs> into a, a big game. Yeah, that's what, we, that's what we like to hear. Um, and so you weren't put off then by... The, the the kind of you know there is no easy way to do a big game at the at the end of the day there's a lot of time involved there's a financial aspect with buying lots and lots of figures um did you not did you not at any stage think oh it's gonna be a bit easier i'm gonna do bolt action with 30 figures yeah or a skirmish <laughs> a couple of pirates <laughs> and a uh, wild west yeah. <laughs> yeah um now i've played in those games and had a great time so i don't want to put those down yeah. um but no i mean i just decide what project i'm doing and then spreadsheet it out i list every unit i list how many i've got to do by such a time and 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 really get down to it and uh, you know i'm not i think also people are put off um by big games because they think well I can't do the terrain. I can't mm. do the scene. You know, I can't do my painting of the figures isn't high enough quality. I mean, mm. you look on the internet and if you were comparing yourself to other people, you'd never do anything. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I see, I think there's a Francesco Tao who does some Napoleonics. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I couldn't even dream to do that. But when you put on a big game, you don't need to be worried by that. People, mm. my 196 figure pipe block, no one looked at each individual figure to see how good or bad it was painted. Yeah. They looked at the effect. Now, I try and do my best on each, but my standard is not this sort of level that some people mm. can do. And so 
you don't want to be intimidated. You just need to get down and start. Yeah, and and I know that these are I'm sounding all um, modern and, and everything now, but there's a journey to go on. There's a journey, and and you need to you know you know how far you've got to get with stuff to to get to to that to that big battle level. It's also been a, a little bit crazy, um, yeah. Because one of your one of your guests was on, and he was doing the battle. Of, he wrote the book on the Battle of Leipzig, and I think you commented, yes, how many right, battalions yeah. there are. And I'm starting with a, a Saxon. Um, I'm doing one division, which I've already in my mind is going to be two divisions. Yeah. And you said, well, it's almost impossible to do every battalion. And then it started me thinking, well, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's um, what I, like. I like a challenge. Yeah, I'm not sure day. I'm going to go that route, but you know, yeah, you've got to be crazy enough to think about that. Yeah, I think it is a mindset. I think it is a mindset, and it's just a different. Uh, no, no way is right or wrong. It's just a different way that our minds look at something like that. Whereas I see, um, you know, the, the army list or order of battle for a big battle as a yeah. challenge to cut everything off rather than something that I'm afraid of that I can't do. So, right, you buggers, I'm going to beat you. I'm <laughs> yeah. going to beat you. And um, I think by spreadsheeting it out, I think I do end projects. Mm. I get to a point where I, I'm yeah. done, and that that's great a great feeling. Yeah, and a, a pirate skirmish would be really small on a spreadsheet, wouldn't <laughs> that's it? That's a weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pirate one. <laughs> Pirate two, treasure chest, <laughs> treasure chest, oh, treasure chest. Yeah, oh, now you now you're putting some detail in, Martin. You're going too too far. You're going too far. So, what's if you think if you think back on your gaming? Um, is there any games that you've played in that not necessarily uh, you've organised? Is there anything that that you've turned up and played in that's kind of wow? That was a great. That was a great um, good game. I've been around some games that I want to get in. Um, there's a guy mm. over here, I'm probably going to butcher his last name, a guy called Jeff Wazaleski, and he does some weird games. He did um, Italian Wars, but Leonardo da Vinci's Machines, and it's okay, more yeah, a role-playing yeah. type game, and he did another one in the Cossack period. He's doing the American War of Independence versus zombies or something. He does some weird stuff, but he's an actor and he dresses up in costume. And oh, wow. He, everyone has a lot of fun. It's not the sort of thing I could pull off, but he's got the personality yeah. to do that and um, everything looks fantastic on his tables. Um, so I I've never thought of a showman kind of style to it, but yeah. That's I mean, he, he's just fantastic and he's got to be the right personality to pull that off. Um, but yeah. yeah. Um, that's. I, I think really my limited time back in the hobby, I've been more concentrating mm. on putting stuff on myself. Yeah, so you go to these big conventions, there's only so much time. And actually, one yeah. of the things that I haven't done, and it sounds surprising, we, we're more participation games over here. I haven't actually played in a game with my Italian Wars troops. Oh no! I, you've got to watch. Well, I'm the, the GMing it and <laughs> running it, um, so I do want to do that sometime this year. Oh, that will, we definitely need to get that off the off the ground for you, definitely. Um, so, do you think, or or why do you think then that, um, uh, and and they have, without a shadow of a doubt, bigger games have kind of gone out of fashion a little bit, and there's a there's a 
new a lot of new players are coming from different areas to wargaming and maybe not used to those bigger battles that maybe we were when we were younger. Do you think those that that's a barrier to new people getting into the? Yeah, bigger I, games? I think um, a lot of people you find a, a really flavour of the month. A lot of these Kickstarters, yeah, where you know it's a box of this and a box of that, and it's only a hundred dollars for this, and um, yeah, there's a lot of that. And then you just find that people put them on the shelves and move on to the next Kickstarter. I think the big games yeah. you you can't afford to flip from thing to thing. You've got to work through a project. So I think all that Kickstarter thing has changed some of that. It certainly has. It certainly has with a lot of the smaller games, hasn't it? Where something comes in and there's a big fanfare on it, and it, you know, box set for this, and then it comes out and you yeah, never see it again. Personally, I'm I'm not for me. Box sets don't work. I like to go and pick and choose figures from different ranges. I want to get a couple yeah. of different rule sets, see what I like, make modifications, mm-hmm. do some to I don't want everything in the box. Um, yeah, it's, it's a shame. I just don't see many people doing really big games. We'll put an end <laughs> to that. We'll put, amazingly, when I first started this podcast, two years ago now, um, I, I was kind of at the point where I was thinking, does anybody do this anymore? <laughs> Um, and then the listing figures have just gone up and 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 up. And there are a lot of people out there who do it. Um, maybe it's not getting as noticed as it should be in in the War Games press, um, which is a real. Do you thing. think as a result of that, people have started big projects and we're just not seeing them come to fruition yet? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And um, quite a few. But I, I, I'm in contact with a lot of people who, you know involved in big projects or want to start big projects um and it kind of leads on nicely to 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 my next question um and they're asking me for advice so if if someone came to you they they came up to you all um breathless at a show and said oh martin this is brilliant this is absolutely brilliant i want to do this uh how do i do it what would kind of your kind of points of, of, adv- of advice be kind of highlights that you go well, I think I've, I've really touched on two of them is um, mm. don't let your own limitations stop you doing it don't be intimidated um, both in terms of the work and um, painting standard um, I mean we all improve in painting mm. but you've just got to accept that I, I'm not an artist I'm a hobbyist um, there yeah. are true artists out there um, you don't have to be them to put on a, a good-looking game. Mm. And then the other side of thing is uh, don't go to an or- organization list that someone's published. Research the battle. Um, decide what you're going to produce. Then have a plan. I'm going to do this unit, then this unit, then this unit, and just get started. I've found that one of the things that get uh, keep me going is just when you've done a unit, Take a picture on your phone and take it to the club to show people you're making progress. Yeah. And it's almost then you've got to show them something new next time. Yeah. It's that, it's that sense of achievement, isn't it? I remember when I first started, I had a Philip J. Haythornway Uniforms of Waterloo book. And in the back, there was an order of battle for Waterloo. And then every time I painted a unit, I was in 15, doing 15 mil back rows when I was a teenager. I put a line <laughs> under it. And that sense of achievement as you worked your way down the order of battle, putting a line under each yeah. one that you did. And you can also plan to, like I did, start with a smaller battle 
and then move on to a next one, which is mm. slightly bigger battle. So you you're actually using stuff as you go. Yeah, good sound. Good good sound advice. I mean, lots of people with this. Uh, I don't know if you've seen my um, one seven hundred scale wood. Difficult to miss it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's rather big. Um, let's. Oh, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Is it, oh, you won't be able to play the. I don't care. <laughs> I love it. It's brilliant. It looks ace. I want to enjoy it. Just let yeah, me get on with it. You're crazy. Leave I'm, us to it. <laughs> you know, remember that guy that you used to leave in the corner of the room and just talking to himself? Well, that's us. <laughs> just leave us there. We're fine. We'll, we'll contact you when we need players. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And then you'll all volunteer them, won't you? And soon, oh, there's something ready for us to play. Uh, we'll come and volunteer now. Well, thanks very much for that, Martin. We're going to cover big games quite a lot in in the fourth part of the show. Um, So we'll take another very quick break and we'll be back for our world-famous quiz. Well, we've had a a number of weeks without doing this quiz, so that's reduced the number of complaints that have come into uh, the Yorkshire Gamer email. (laughs) So, uh, once again, I a disclaimer that the Yorkshire Gamer quiz is not about how good a gamer you are. It's about how Yorkshire Gamer you are. And uh, a, neg- a low score could be positive. Um, doesn't make it right, but it could be positive. So, um, nice and straightforward, Martin. Uh, I think you've heard this before. Um, it's a yes or no question, um, or there's uh, one answer or another. Um, and with me... Being in Yorkshire, it's all very black and white. There's no umming and ahhing around questions. Do you, are, you, are you happy with the rules? Yeah, hopefully I won't generate too many emails for you. Oh, excellent. We love a good email. We love a good email on this show. So, uh, first question. I think I know the answer to this one. Uh, go big or go home? That's an easy starter. Go big. Go big. Excellent. Um, contrast paints, are they great or are they a gimmick? I would say, in general, they're a gimmick. I've seen a few people do some really good stuff with them, but the majority of them I just don't like. But I'm actually, and you probably know this, I'm getting back into the hobby and everything's new to me. I found a new way of painting faces, which is new for me, Mm. where I um, paint them white and then um, do uh, earth shade wash. So you do your wash first, but Mm. then use the contrast paint... um, flesh i think it's guillemot flesh and just highlight the the nose and the cheeks yeah. and anywhere the wash hasn't settled and it's revolutionized my face painting <laughs> so um i would say in general a gimmick but yeah painting faces i'm a little convert yeah. on that I'm specialized bu- specialized use here and there a yeah t- i'm not a tool using in it the as box. a contrast <laughs> a tool in the box yeah so yeah gimmick though as general yeah. <laughs> Um, not sure how this will translate in the US, but you're choosing a, a paintbrush and you go all reek posh, Windsor and New, and or Yorkshire made pro art. Well, I actually used neither, but yeah. I'm with a previous guest on this, Henry Hyde. I listened to him over Christmas, Rosemary yeah. and Co. Yes, down the road, down yeah. the road. So I use those all the time, great brushes. So yeah, does that keep are. me in the Yorkshire side of the ledger? I'll, I'll give you half a point. Uh, <laughs> Uh, now, this is an interesting one for you. 96 figures. Is that an army or a unit of pike? Well, for my Battle of Bicoca, I had a n- number of 36-figure pike blocks, but I had 
240 figure Swiss and wow. two 200 figure Lanchnecks. And then for the Battle of Ravenna, I went for 196 figures. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely a pipe block. It's definitely a pipe block. A small one. It's, yeah, <laughs> these new rules come out, and I won't say them because I got in trouble when I did, but very, very small pipe blocks don't look right at all. But 196, 200 odd plus, that's what I'm talking about. Because yeah. I think, um, was it uh, Ravenna or Bayakoka, where um, nine and a half thousand in one of the blocks? Yeah, that was my, uh, it was about nine. 1,500 people in the pipe block. So I did that on a 50 to 1 scale. I think it's, what's that, 16 by 16, uh, yeah. 196 figures. I've not seen a larger pipe block out there in 28 millimeter, but I would love it if someone posted a bigger one. On There's a challenge, one. folks. There's yeah. a challenge. I've seen um, Simon Miller's um, successor pipe blocks. Um they, they're huge. I think the 64-figure units, yeah. and then this kind of spread out down a 15-foot table. So I'd love to know how many figures in that, but I don't think as a single unit I've seen more than than 196. I think that's, yeah. a, that's definitely a challenge out there to someone. Top effort. Top effort from the boy. And that's 28 mil as well. None of these, none of these <laughs> baby scales. Right, next. Uh, six by four. Is that a big game or a small game? I would say generally a small game. Excellent. Um, you're going to organise a game. Are you going for a points-based or historical order of battle? I, I detest points. <laughs> Excellent. Another, another points hater. Excellent. That's what we like to see. Um, you're doing your painting. Do you use a wet palette or an old bit of MDF to mix your paints? Yeah, this is another one. It's um, I get a Chinese container. I put yep. down some poly roll wet it yep. and then put a piece of um what do you call it greaseproof paper on top and it's great wet palette for the first day your paint stale then my thing dries out and i'm ending yep. up just using a piece of greaseproof paper exactly the same as an mdf so 90 percent of my painting starts off as a wet palette but ends up as a just a sheet of mdf oh, yeah. essentially so good in theory, but just doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, there's there's definitely a bit of a, a swing in this. When I started this, wet palettes were the thing, um, and now I see a lot of people. My mate um, Chris Breeze, who was on the first ever episode, and he's done a couple of others since. Um, he's stopped using his wet palette now. Yeah. Uh, so the truth is out there. But a wet palette, if you're going to use one, don't pay for one. Just yes. make make your own. It's so cheap. Uh, yeah, you see them. They're like fourteen, fifteen quid or something. It's like, hang on a minute. Yeah, like you say, you've you, used a Chinese takeaway container. Even even if you're paying for your greaseproof paper, it's like tuppence or yeah. um, ten okay. cents, a quarter. See, I know all my American monies. Yeah. Excellent. You're doing very well so far. You're doing very well. So, um, let's see how let's see how badly it goes from now on. Um, Undercounting <laughs> <go>. figures. <laughs> um, are you going to go black or white? Uh, again, ninety five percent of my stuff is black. Yeah. But painting my Saxons in their white uniform, it just doesn't work for that. Yeah. So there's very um, very discreet things I will use for white yeah. uniforms i will use i don't even use a white primer i use a light gray primer but but black is my preferred and the vallejo black it just i don't spray it on i actually brush it on the the brush on primer yeah. great product love it 
So um, this is the, the next question is the reason why I, I can never live in America. Um, and that's Yorkshire tea or dirty mucky coffee. I'm going to I'm going to sit a little on the fence on this. Uh, I much prefer tea. Yeah. However, American tea. If I'm in Italy, going into a coffee bar for breakfast, I'll have a cappuccino, mm. or after a meal in the evening, I'll have a little espresso with a grappa. So in the right place, a coffee is good. But for general drinking, tea. Yeah, even I, even I will drink coffee in Italy um, because it's it's a national pastime, isn't it? It's, oh yes, yeah. it's just um, you know they, they really take care about it. Um, so I suppose in America then it's going to be Lipton's iced tea and all that. Oh, stuff, I can't is it? drink iced tea. Can't be done with that. It's horrible stuff. I've got some. I, I don't know where PG Tips is from. Is that from the other side? Yeah, that it's um, it, PG Tips is is an English company. Obviously, it's Indian tea, but. Um, it's not. It's not too bad. It's a, is a reasonable a, brew. Is that a Lancashire one or a Yorkshire one? PG. It might be PG. No, I think it's down south somewhere. I don't think it's um, okay. from the Yorkshire Tea Belt. Yeah. Well, I, I can get that over here. So that's what I would drink uh, when I was in the UK. It was normally Tetley's or something like that. Yeah. Oh, steady away. Steady away. Uh, question ten: War Games units. Um, if it's uh, historically accurate, do you like them tightly packed or socially distanced? Uh, tightly packed. Um, you know, when I was doing the Cossack uprising, a lot of the Cossacks travelled in masses, so it's a little bit more spacing there. So, with the proviso about historically accurate, mm. generally very, very tightly packed. Excellent. You don't like pipe blocks with. 20 figure space between each figure it's not a pipe block it's a gallery yeah it just drives me mad just drives me mad (laughs) 20 millimeters a figure that's what i do exactly Exactly. the problem is with that and i bat all my figures individually which really helps with the flags i do different flagmen so i can Uh, substitute them in and out out, good idea Uh, um with the pikes going all sorts of directions i on that 196 figure pipe block uh, i cut Bought it from 200 figures to combine yeah. them. Um, trying to fit them all in so the pikes wouldn't impede the guy in front. It oh. took me like three hours to arrange them. I bet it did. I bet it did. Top tip from me about big pike blocks and arranging figures is to is to offset the ranks. So um, put your first rank down and then your second rank, put each man slightly to the right. Yeah. So that their pike fits through the gap for, between the two guys in front. Yep. And then go from, I go from, my personal preference is, is lowered to upright over about six or seven ranks. So as you're going backwards, those gaps between the figures enable you to fit each of the pike in. Yeah, I do something similar with it going back and the front row. I'm at everything on an individual 20 millimeter base, but the mm. front row I tend to add to the left of the base and the, the next oh. row to the right of the base. Excellent, so. excellent. We're on the same. We're on the same wavelength there, mate. We are certainly. Um, so, um, question eleven: um, Would you like a two-hour club game or a weekend monster game? Uh, the weekend monster game. Excellent. Uh, another one that I'm not sure how it will translate to the US of A, but avocado. Is it just posh, mushy peas? Avocado. If I'm in Mexico eating street food, a nice bit yeah. of guacamole is good. So I'd say there's yeah. a place for avocado. 
but that place is not with egg on toast. <laughs> uh, Excellent. Yeah, bit, bit, bit of bacon and black pudding. That's what you want there on a, a bacon sarnie. <laughs> yeah. I, I, just, I just don't understand it. Sorry, yeah. Nick Skinner. Don't, just don't understand it, mate. Now, I do like peas, but I'm not a huge fan of mushy, so you're probably going to knock some yeah. points off on that. But definitely avocado only in its place. Excellent. Excellent. And there, there is a place for avocado. <laughs> And it's out of that window over there. Anyway, um, so next up is uh, is the universal question, Martin. So there's, uh, there's a bit of a pressure on you here. Um, come 39 episodes, everyone's answered the same so far. And that's round, round dice. Are they allowed or banned on your table? Well, I might shock you here. No, yep. I'm not. <laughs> um, um, I actually love the engineering concept where they've got like an octahedron in the middle. Engineeringly, yeah. they're... They're a marvel. Um, yeah. But no, nowhere near my table. Right, so that's what we like to see. 100% still. Let's see if we can get to 50 episodes with everyone answering the same. Um, <laughs> you're down the chippy. Um, do you have haddock or cod? Well, you cannot get good fish and chips in the US. So yeah. at this point, I would take absolutely either You'll of them. Anything. I'll take anything. <laughs> um, now, if I was in the UK, I don't go down the chippy that often. But when I go back and not having eaten it, I'm eating it twice in two weeks. So yeah. um, given the choice, I would take haddock, but yeah. I would take absolutely anything right now. Awesome. Awesome. We had fish and chips last night. Love oh, absolutely love it. Jealous. Do you come back to the UK much at all? Probably once or twice a year. Have you still got family over here? Yeah, st- still got oh, family. Cool. Um, so question 15, um, do you like a good table in a set of rules, like a casualty table, um, or are you six and you're dead kind of dice roll? Well, I love, um, games like Harpoon 5 and Warship Commander mm, with the yeah, table. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier on, I, yeah. I would not dream of taking complex rules with tables to a convention. I think you want, when you're doing a participation game with 14 players that you don't know, yeah, I need to move away <laughs> from that. So that's not the game I would play myself, but it's the game I, I that works in yeah. the convention setting. So yeah, yeah I, I like a, a good table for myself. Awesome. Twenty-eight Millie's King, yes or no? Well, I think we touched on this. Yeah, with the although we'll we'll give a shout out to the forties as well. Yeah, excellent. Twenty-eight, twenty-eight mil or bigger is King. <laughs> there we go. There's a, there's a few emails coming from that statement. Um, what always amazes me is that people have listened for nearly an hour to get to this point to complain. <laughs> Have a think about that, everyone out there. Well, there we go. Um, so, question 17. Unpainted miniatures allowed on the table, yes or no? There's no excuse for that. Just paint them. Excellent. Um you, you did spend some time in the UK, so you will have a knowledge of uh, football or soccer, as you as it's said. Don't, don't tie me in with this. No, it's like, what? <laughs> anyway, uh, I mean, how is American football? Football, you only kick it about four times in the game. And they're taking oxygen after 30 seconds on the field, or, yeah. Well, any, anyway, <laughs> let's, not, let's not generally sports-related complaints. Um, so, um, well, the, the Eagles teams... were at the Super Bowl last week, so... Ah, uh, well, it, it, I, do like, I do like American football, and I've followed Dallas Cowboys since the days of uh, oh. Danny White as a quarterback, so that's going that, back a long, long way. That won't get you any favours in Philadelphia, like in no, the No, it won't do. I'll be, um, I'll be drummed out of the street, tarred and feathered, won't I? So, uh, um, so... 
back to the question. Bradford City or Leeds United? I am wearing a Bradford City top, by the way, just in case. Well, as you probably noticed by my top, I'm um, really a rugby fan. It's a yeah. Bath, Bath rugby Bath fan. So rugby. Yeah, so I'm, I can't claim to be a huge football fan. Um, although I did follow Birmingham City when I was young. And ah, right, excellent. Pub, pub trivia question. Who was the first million-dollar transfer in English soccer? Was that... Was it Trevor Francis? It was Trevor Francis to oh. Brian Clough and Nottingham Forest. Brilliant. So, uh, yes, I remember. I remember those days very well. Very yeah, well. Last time Birmingham was great. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it, it's improved massively, actually. Um, I went to a concert in Birmingham a couple of years ago, um, and I was um, presently surprised at how much better it was since I would you know I went there in the 80s and stuff to shows and what have you oh the whole canal district they've done a fantastic job with yeah the whole city center yeah yeah the bits of the bit I mean it's the same in Leeds really the calls the calls in Leeds used to be the area where that you would find prostitutes and dead bodies um and it's now the place for the nouveau rich to have a, a canal side apartment and uh Great, amazing yeah. thing to change. Uh, so, is the is that area of the of Birmingham gone that way as well? Yeah, uh, from what I've seen, you know, I don't go all over, but the centre mm-hmm. certainly seems to be much, much better. Yeah, it used to be a good spot to go for like old shopping trolleys in the canal and and yeah. bikes and German bombs from World War Two, that sort of thing. But they they seem to have dredged it, and all that's gone away now. Well, last time I was there, I even sat on Black Sabbath Bridge. Whoa, awesome! <laughs> Awesome. I, I don't think I actually answered your question for it, Leeds or Bradford. Um, I guess supporting Birmingham, I'm more the underdog, so yeah. it's probably going to be Bradford. Awesome. Choose. That's what we like to hear. Uh, question 19 Yorkshire or the other place over the hill that we don't mention on this podcast? Well, I've worked in Yorkshire, if you count Humberside. Wow, yeah. East Riding. Um, I've worked over in Staley Bridge. In, is that Cheshire Staley Bridge or yeah, is it in... Cheshire Staley Bridge near yeah. um near Glossop, that sort of area. Um, it's um nice there. my first story about well my story about going over there, I'd moved from from Hull um with my job to to Staley Bridge and I went down the pub after two weeks and I just got chatting to this guy while we were watching the Formula One on the TV and I said, uh, I've been here two weeks and it's rained every single day. <laughs> he said, "Don't worry, I've been here two months and it's rained every single day." <laughs> so, Sounds uh, about right. Sounds yeah. about right. So yeah, uh, so yeah, I, I, I mean, I like both places, but the Yorkshire Moors, I love that. It's it's a really nice, but I'm so lucky to have worked there most of my adult life. It's a, a, if you get fed up, you know, you're not far away from an amazing view to cheer yourself up. So definitely a good place. Um, so final question. Um, Games Workshop, are they the work of the devil? Yes, they are, and I will tell you why. <laughs> and it's not for the reason most people think. Yeah. It's their um, Citadel paint range. Mm. And it's they charge a fortune for this contrast flesh colour, Yeah, which is fine. I'm all for that. Make some money. But don't put it in a pot that you've got to lift the lid and falls over at the first time and spills half my pot of paint. They do it on purpose, I swear. They yeah. do it on it's purpose. It's a marketing so move then. Yeah, I mean, Vallejo, you could knock the bottle over, you're not going to lose a drop. So, yeah. Sorry, I'm on my horse here. No, it's great. I love, <laughs> I love a rant. I love a rant. I'm, 
yeah, Citadel paint and that paint pot was designed to spill so you would buy more. And that's why they are the work of the devil. It's, I have to say that it's never happened to me, but I, I, I'm very, very sparingly used GW paints. Occasionally I'll come up, there's a, a really dark, Ivan Dark Sun or something like that it's called. It's a really deep, very heavily opaque yellow. Right. Um, and I use it as a base for yellow because it covers black, because I always undercoat black apart from horses. Um, so they occasionally get a really, really good paint in the range, um, but I don't use much of their stuff. And I've <laughs> you'll, seen spill, paint- you'll spill more than that you use yeah, at, I, at some point in time. It's going to happen to you. I've seen all these pictures all over the internet with people losing the the GW paints and it's it's never happened to me yet fingers crossed yeah they do it on um, purpose I, though I swear they do you're probably going to get lawsuits from Games Workshop now but yeah well I've had this question in for ages and I'm amazed I haven't had somebody come you can't do that um <laughs> so and and what another thing that annoys me about GW is that is how they um you get they bring a paint out that everyone relies on. Like it was Devland Mud, um, which was like the a wash, and then it changed to Agrax Earthshade, and then they just suddenly overnight go, "We're not going to do that anymore." We do this. Yeah, you can't do that. That's dreadful, <laughs> dreadful. Um, I, I, I use that Devland Devland Mud for for years and years and years, and then suddenly it just went, "Not doing it anymore." Yeah. And I luckily I'd got a bit of a stash going, but all that's been used now, so uh, uh, I'm on to other methods yeah. of yeah. washing. You can re- you can rely on uh, Valeo sepia wash and uh, umber wash. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're not going exactly. anywhere. There's stuff out there that still works, which is brilliant. Well, thank you very much for that. You've done extremely well. Uh, you've got ninety percent, which is uh, oh, pretty good. Pretty damn that. good. You are definitely in the upper quartile. Um, so very impressed with that. Very well indeed. Um, so uh, we're moving on now in the features section. We've got um, a few bits and more to go on this, uh, and this is room one hundred and one. Um, so George Orwell's Room of Horror turned into a TV show in the UK and the guests there would try and convince the host that a pet hate of theirs uh, should be consigned into the room and banished forever so this is your chance Martin to get rid of something that you um, and it's it's just a pet hate don't worry about offending people um, that really drives you nuts so the, the, the door to the vault is opening behind me as we speak so uh, what is your chosen entrant into room 101? Oh, so many things, so many things. <laughs> you know, when I, I've said this before in the podcast, but um, I'll say it again. When I first started doing this, I thought this is going to last like six weeks. Yeah. And then everyone, everyone's going to come on and go, I can't think of one. Uh, you, you've got points and uh, I can't think of one. Um, and but just people go, oh, I've got loads, Ken. I've got, can I do 12? <laughs> no, you can do one. Well, um, one of your guests, Chris Flowers, really helped me out because yeah. unpainted flag edges, if I oh. brought that to room 101 and you'd yeah. not allowed me to put it in, I would have felt I'd done a disservice to the wargaming community. <laughs> <laughs> so he really saved me and allowed me to go off off piste on the rest. Yeah. So um, I would say the one thing that annoys me, and this is strange coming from a big gamer, is yeah. overcrowded tables. Oh, nice, nice. You know that game where you've got a line of figures 
against another line of figures and no option other than to go forward or not to go forward. And that is it. That's that's no tactics, no nothing. Add another table on each end and open it up and have some room to maneuver on the flanks and do some tactics. Yeah, overcrowded tables. Um, that is know. an awesome one. I like that. I like that. Because I think... Um... And I'll get in trouble with ancients players now, but I think ancients are the biggest culprits of it. Yeah. From from my knowledge of looking at tables, um, you know, massive, massive big units and a huge tech and nothing else. But I've got a book on the Antiochus, or Antiochus, um, the Seleucid commander, and his tactics and looking at that and. A lot of stuff happened on the flanks, and yeah. there was movement and to and fro. And I understand the center was tightly packed, and that's fine. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's what... well, I, I, you know, that it amazes me how people bring these up every time. I know there's people out there who are itching to get on just for something new one oh one. So yours is in there, mate. That's an absolutely fantastic one. The 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 vault is closing behind me and um yeah, I like a lot of figures on a table, but I also like to get a sense of a of a of a battle. And and there are gonna be areas where there are less troops, there's gonna be areas where um terrain determines the number of troops that can get into that particular area. Uh, and it's not all one giant mass of men. Well, I had uh, the Battle of Ravenna. You know, you've got the, the defences and the cavalry on either side, the heavies on mm. really the, the left and the light cavalry on the, the, the right-hand side. Mm. I had one guy, a guy at a convention, a young guy, I think he was like 22. He yeah. took command of the light cavalry, which are not particularly impressive. And he had so much room to move. He was charging, retreating, <laughs> counter-charging. He could, the guy couldn't take a smile off his face all, all day. Oh, and brilliant. he just, you know, other people would have said, I've got the light cavalry, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. He was having his battle and he just brilliant. loved it. And that was Excellent. made my convention. That's, I love to hear that. That is absolutely fantastic. And then the, the final section, the final section of our little features section is uh, is the Desert Island War Game. And uh, being expat, you'll know all about Desert Island Discs on yeah. uh, on Radio 4 now. Um, so what would your... What would your Desert Island game be? What would the, be the one game that, regard, you know, cost, space, figures, all of that, nothing's an issue. What is the game that you would want to take to your Desert Island? Um, I, I just love the Italian War, so, and I think there's so <laughs> much you can do with that. Um, yeah. And it's my first big project, so it's, it's got something there for me. Um, the, other, the other one that's tying with that. Um, is a project I want to do, and it's because it takes me back to when I started in the hobby. It's just a really huge modern microarmor project. Yes, yeah. Um, I've got this image in my mind of two six foot by twenty four foot tables with um, Soviet division, with the entire sorry Soviet tank regiment with the entire um, divisional bridging assets. Oh, the whole um, lot! Helicopters, everything just trying to cross a, a river that's two foot wide on the table. Um, just massive. And I've just bought 300 buildings. Um, oh, fantastic. Start, start with mad project. Do yeah. you remember, do you remember a game called um, core commander? 
Yeah, on tabletop book. games. Yeah, yeah. Because they had the the thing I loved about that was that they had all the engineering stuff was in there, and they had rules for it, and it just covered absolutely everything, rather than your typical tank, tank, infantryman hiding in a ditch kind of game. Yeah, and I think you've got to have the the room, you've got to have the big rivers, yeah. you've got to have the space. So you know, you don't want an entire team Yankee. You get a lawsuit over this one. That drives me nuts. It's like a parking lot. You know, yeah. you've got 20 tanks inside a one foot area and they always end up six inches away from the opposition. You know, yeah. These Strange. guys are killing each other three kilometers. One one of the uh, one of the things that um, got me into a massive amount of trouble a couple of years ago um, was because I we've we've toyed with Team Yankee here and we've actually rewritten them to make them a lot better and increase the ranges etc and make them into a more uh, traditional set of war games un- units but my way of stopping the tank park method was i've got this giant sledgehammer that's about <laughs> three foot wide so i put a picture on facebook of two tanks with the sledgehammer between them um and just kind of went yorkshire gamers trademark york um Team Yankee tank spacing device. Oh, my word. <laughs> oh, some people got very upset. Some people oh. are tied to this Team Yankee. They love it. It's crazy, isn't it? Crazy. Yeah. Uh, but there we go. There we go. Um, so along with your, your Desert Island game, um, you get to take, uh, other than a religious book of your choice, you get to take a book. Um, so what would you choose book-wise? Well, I was sort of thinking about this, and um, I, Aman, the uh, Art of War in the 16th century, yeah. it's a good book. There's a lot of things wrong in there that he doesn't get yeah. right, accepting that. Um, but there's, I've already read the Italian Wars section, and there's other parts that I haven't read that he does. A, he's very easy to read, so I do like yeah. that book. But I'm going to be a, a little bit more indulgent. It's not a big book but it's probably the best book I've ever bought um, for Wargaming. It's um, it's in Italian. It's um, the Ultima Battaglia de Medievo, um, the Battle of Ariotta. Wow, look um, at that. Awesome. Um, by a guy called Mario Truzzo. So I've got Tro- Mario Truzzo. I've got no relation to him, so but I will <laughs> plug it because it's a, a great book. It's just so well written. It's in Italian. So yeah. I can brush up on my Italian while I'm on the island. Well done, well done. Um, but it's so well written. It's researched really well. The drawings are really good. They do maps and a 3D topical of the battlefield. And it's the only book that's ever described that battle anywhere near what it actually was. Wow, that's awesome. Who's the who's the publisher on that one then, mate? You could just um, um, make it easy to look up. I have no idea. But um, it's called the Ultima Battle, Battaglia de Medievo, La Battaglia dell'Ariotta, Navarra, 6th of June, 1513. Uh, awesome. And a guy called Mario Trozo. Um, okay, yeah. I just, I'm, you I'm just search at, it. I mean, obviously, we can't, the blisters can't see it, but it, it's it's um, like a hard cover rather it's, than a hard back. It's a, yeah, it's a glossy uh, it, cover. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, it's really well put together book physically put together well yeah. as well it can it, it looks like an osprey on steroids oh don't, don't even put this in the same category <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot bigger it's a lot bigger and and probably 
twice the size of the campaign series books looking at looking at it through yeah. the camera so well i have to say i haven't got that book so i shall keep an eye out for that it's probably one of those books that he's sold four of them to his family and friends and now there's going to yeah. be a rush on them so yeah but those those charles o'man books are really good and like you say they're a bit dated now but they read so well yeah. and um i've read the the kind of the late medieval one as well, which kind of leads up to the Italian oh, cool. wars. And that's really good to get in your mindset how, um, sorry, Bill Hooks, but how it changes, how warfare changes from that late medieval to early Renaissance period. Um, and it's well worth a read. Oh, I'll have to put that on my book buying list. There's a, um, there's a green one and a blue one. Um, yeah. So, yes, definitely, definitely. Um, and finally, in this section, um, you get to choose a war games unit to take to the uh, desert island. And that can be one of your own. It can be one that particularly means something to you from a magazine or, or from anywhere. Well, I'm not suggesting you steal it, obviously. Um, but, uh, what would be your war games unit that you would take? I would say it would be um, one of the units of the old guard that my uncle painted for me because mm. that was such a step up when he gave it me for Christmas and it yeah. meant so much at the time. Um, I think it was minifigs, that they 20 millimeters, so it's going to go with yeah. nothing I've got now. <laughs> um, but that, that would probably be the unit. I, I don't want anyone else's units because they wouldn't go with my style of painting. They may be yeah. better painted, but I think you, I want a consistency across my table. Sure. So are they still around? Have, they, have you still got them? Or oh, I've still got them. Oh, they're, brilliant! That's they're fantastic. in the basement. Um, yeah, I've still got. Oh, them. I, would, I was, I was, I was worried that there might be some horrible story about losing them in a move or something like that. But that's fantastic to hear that you're still with them because um, you can have those iconic units um, like the uh, the Irish Brigade from the Peninsula War that was featured in so many of the. War Games Illustrated magazines back in the day um, that you'd love to own. But then it doesn't have that, this is my unit. Yeah. Um, you know, the the first unit you ever painted or, or like that that one, the one that you were gifted to and it give, brings back memories of a, of a family uh, member. You just can't take that away from that, can you? Yeah, and I, I don't see me ever using it um, for two reasons um, mm. on the table. One, I'm never going to get 20 millimetres to go with it <laughs> and secondly my style of armies is i am very reluctantly put any guard units in i would yeah. much rather play with the conscripts and the other stuff i you know it's not all about i've got to have that unit to help me win um i'm more of a let's get the mass of the army absolutely brilliant well thank you very much for that we'll take another short break for the audience and we shall be back shortly for our big topic Excellent. So uh, we've we come on to our big topic, and uh, this is big gaming in the USA. So, um, Martin, you've you've kind of come back to the hobby and carved yourself uh, quite a big niche here, um, um, and going and taking some pretty spectacular games to shows in the US. It's been covered elsewhere before, but I thought we'd start off by... Um, just really getting you to describe what uh, a typical US convention is like compared to um, a UK convention. Yeah, well, 
I can't really compare because when I was in the hobby in the UK, I was really too yeah. young to go to conventions. <laughs> so the only real knowledge of um, UK conventions is what I see on the internet. Um, perhaps I can more sort of concentrate on describing what goes on yeah, sure. at a US convention. Um, here on the east coast of the US, um, there's conventions run by the Historical Miniature Gaming Society, HMGS. And um, they typically have, and it's all been upset by COVID, but we're sort of getting out of that now, um, three conventions a year. The one in the spring, which is coming up in two weeks' time, is called Cold Wars. The one in the summer, is Cold Wars is typically, it starts Thursday night and goes through to Sunday morning. Historicon is the big one in the summer. Yep. Um, and that's an extra day. And then Fall In is the one in, in the autumn or the four was it's called. Um, so typically there's two types of people, the ones that go for the entire convention where you actually stop at a hotel on site mm. and then other day trippers. Um, that they have essentially three parts to the convention. They have a dealer hall, um, which is open not the Thursday night, but Friday, Saturday, sun, Friday, Saturday and Sunday morning or Thursday, Friday, yeah. Um, and there's normally about 50 vendors and some big, yeah, big ones, yeah. um, you know, Old Glory um, are there. So a lot of money is spent there. And that attracts the day trippers. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing that's never appealed to me, but seems to, there's a fanatical following is something called um, the flea market. Um, people pay for a table and exhibit their wares and sell the stuff they don't want and, one one man's trash is another man's trash, you know. So um, yeah, I think it's 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 known as a bring and well, it used to be like a a generic one that was called a bring and buy, where it would be run by lots of people. Or we've started to probably come to your method now, or the American method now, where somebody will hire a table for two hours and sell their stuff, and then. Once that's done, that person will go, and then somebody else will come to that table. Is that is that how it works there? Yeah, it's typically longer. You typically hire the table for the morning or the afternoon. Right. So yeah. um, that's what – I don't tend to go down there very often because I know what I want, and I've got it. <laughs> but I did go down there just as they were packing up on the Sunday last time, and everyone's trying to get rid of anything they haven't sold. And I found um, – don't know whether you know Sash and Saber, the forty millimeter yes, guys. Yeah, I've heard of those. Yeah, I've got some. I got some French forty millimeter. I wanted some Russian forty millimeter, and I picked up two hundred and fifty dollars worth of stuff for twenty dollars. Wow! And the only reason I hadn't bought them is I was expecting Sash and Saber to be at the convention, and they weren't. Otherwise, I would have bought them <laughs> at the full wow, price. That's a good saving. That is so a good saving. That's my only time I've bought anything at the flea market. So. <laughs> There's, there's that. And then um, what I think we're more interested in is the third triad, which mm. is the gaming. Yeah. And typically convention fees, it's ridiculously low. It's like $35 to get into the convention for the whole period or something like that. If you put on a game that's um, 16 player hours, that's number of people times the number of hours, so four people times four for a four-hour game, you, you get in for free. Which, right. you know, that means something to someone, but when you've spent X amount of dollars in <laughs> for a big game, it really doesn't yeah. count for very much. But uh, it's a nice gesture. 
and these participation games, anyone can sign up to go into any game. And so you, um, a lot of games are for four or six people. I've tended to put on games for 12 or 14 people. Um, yeah. And people sign up, people who've um, either have played the rules before and love them, or you get people who want to try out the rules or try out the period and know nothing about it. So you get a wide range of people coming and, Typically, games are for four hours at a time. You can go longer, but that's typically what people want. So some people will come and play six or seven games over a convention. Very, very, very different uh, to, to how we go here. You kind of touched on pricing uh, there. And so it, you pay. So if you let's say I just want to come along for the day, and wander around the trade hall. Is that what, what, what would that cost me? I, I don't. For the entire convention, it's not very much. It's thirty-five, forty dollars. Yeah, I so think for, for a day, you probably it might be twenty. A... Might be twenty dollars. I I don't know, but it's not a ridiculous amount. But if you're bringing a what's called a non-playing spouse or partner, they they get a free ticket. Oh, brilliant! So brilliant. Um, I've often, um, you know, when I go to a convention, I don't really want my girlfriend around me all the time. But uh, take. The, her, you know, a couple hours in the morning, I'll walk the convention, show her all the tables, she'll see my setup, and then she'll go and do whatever she wants to do. But it, it's nice that you can take your partners in and show them what's going on, and there's no yeah, charge very, for that. Yeah, that's that's very good. And um, the 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 choice of games is that on a first come first serve basis, or do, do you as a as an organizer and we'll talk more about the actual organizations of the game in, in a little bit but do you pick your players or do they pick you or how does it work there's um, a sign up registration is just open for call uh, cold wars um, yeah. and there's a list of games and you can sign up for them so i'm doing my game um, it's modern afghanistan quite a complex set of rules so it's a much smaller game I'm running it twice each of four hours and allowing four players to join in. People will sign up for that. I have no idea who they are or or what you know what experience they've got. It can be anyone, and that's that's half the fun of it. Um, mm. And in a big game, if I'm let's say I, I've got putting out a big game, I may um, allocate twelve places for them to sign up, but I normally keep a couple up my sleeve. <laughs> so I could do, you know, some walk-ups. Um, yeah. Particularly, um, I had two fantastic older gentlemen um, that come in from out of town, San Virginia or Texas, and they played in my games every convention. And he, oh, they saw me in the, the corridor and they said, oh, we didn't see you in the program. We didn't know you were putting on a game. I said, just turn up, I'll fit you in. <laughs> you know? Oh, awesome. So you, you fit in your regulars, you know. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And they're such great players. They're, they're yeah. kind, courteous, and just have such a good time every time they play. That's that's great to hear. And what do you find um, is the is the motivation um, for people joining the games that you've run? Is it people wanting to try rules? Is it people coming back because they've had a game with you before and they've enjoyed it? Is it the period? Is there a big um, selection of reasons why or, or is the one that sticks out well i, I think there's uh, there's people coming back obviously um mm. i think the first convention i um put on you're, you're unknown 
so yeah. it takes time for people to warm up. But I, I think people have seen some of my games and, and want to be a part of them. And then I think one of the, the unsavory aspects of it is people will sign up for a game to make sure they've got a game and right. then go window shopping and see if they want another game. I, You know, if I sign up for a game, I've made a commitment. I'm going to join that game and play it, even if there's something better, some yeah. shinier piece of stuff over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that's one of the unsavory things. And they've talked about should there be a like a $5 fee to join a game, and that's still being discussed. Um, it tends to be, you know, the people who aren't happy with that are the people who's games they've left to join the other shinier game. Uh, luckily, I've not experienced that side of things, but it does go on and they probably need to address that. And um, not not trying not try to be negative or anything, but um, does the does the organiser of the game have a veto? You know, if somebody... I'm, in, I'm sure it hasn't, but sometimes it does. They've, they've had somebody who's been a bit of a pain in the backside. You know, if you go, oh, bloody hell, Derek's coming again. Uh, no, he's not joining in. <laughs> Do you have you, kind of a veto over who plays? No, because you don't see who's uh, signed right, okay. up before. Um, yeah. I, I feel that I have the right to ask anyone to leave my table. Sure. I've never had to exercise that right. I don't know how the convention would respond to that. But if they want their thirty-five dollars that they gave me as a discount, because I, you know, I'll give them the thirty-five dollars, it doesn't mean that much to me. But yeah. you know, it's only th- if someone was rude to other people or very disrespectful of the figures. You know, if someone accidentally breaks something, you have casualties amongst friends. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I have several sort of rule sets on the table to minimize damage. I think it. There's a lot I can do. Um, the first thing I say to people is if a flag falls off or a head falls off a figure, let me know. Because if it goes missing, I've lost the figure. Yeah. If I've got it in my hand, I can put it in the box and I can glue it back on when I get home. It's no issue. Um, so that's the first thing I say. I then um, always have dice boxes. And I have a, a table rule, which um, other people have implemented. I say, look, you can choose to roll in the die box or not. Your choice. But if you roll a dice and it lands on the edge in the die box, you can roll it again. If it rolls and lands on its edge on the terrain, your opponent gets to decide what number that dice is. Oh, that's a good one. We like that. And uh, like it's up that. to them. We'll keep that one. We like that one. That's a good. That's a good idea. I like that. And, and is there a is there any aspect um, of people selling the game? Not physically selling the games, but, you know, kind of promoting the games to get people to join their table. You know, is the um, Martin's Facebook group for this, you know, for this uh, convention, come along and play my game, or you kind of relying on, as you say, people signing up? I think there's sort of three levels of that. There's groups like Little Wars TV yeah. and Lard America um, that, They'll join, Lard America particularly joins in each other's games and they've got their own Facebook group and Little Wars TV are very known and people want to play theirs game. So they're more professional on the promoting side of things. Um, I would say then there's um, a sort of second tier of myself and other people who will do a play test of our game and put pictures up. 
I'll do my blog post. I'll put a few pictures up on the HMGS website for the convention so people can see it. And then there's the other 70 or 80% who there's no advertising at all. It's just listed in the games with a brief two or three line description so you know what it is. And yeah. that's, I figure, you know, if people know what they're signing up for, um, I, I've, I've been very lucky. Some of it's luck and some of it's advertising, putting stuff out there to have full games. I mean, do, do you get um, games that just people haven't signed up for? Uh, I mean, it's quite a sad thought, really, that somebody's put all that effort in and they, there's kind of an empty table and nobody turns up. But um, there must be games that are more popular than others and some that don't have you know, all, all the players that they've advertised for. Yeah, I, I think that sometimes some tables are light um, on the players. But as a general rule, most tables have players. Oh, if you're putting on a four-person game and only two show up, you can have a good game. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you do get some that are, are light, but um, I've not sensed that there's a lot of people who get no one to their table. I don't think that's a big problem. Is there, is there an overarching kind of organisation that tries to fit people to games if they or is it all down to personal choice? It's all down to personal choice. Oh, um, I've said this to the, the president and other people at HMGS. Um, they need to get more into the marketing of this. Um, yeah. You know, when you're doing internet content, you know, we're very lucky. We've got a photogenic hobby. There's yeah, no shortage yeah, yeah. of content. It's just they're not advertising it and promoting it using that content. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think that's one area they need to improve. Brilliant. Well, we've uh, we've mentioned the names a couple of times, and um, HMGS—it's um, a concept that we you know we're not familiar with in the UK. Um, most war game shows here are run by either individuals or traditionally by clubs that would use the the, the show to raise money to keep the club going for the year. And occasionally now we, we have ones that are run by manufacturers. So um, HMGS, um, what is it? How does it work? It's a membership organisation. Um, it doesn't cost, I think it's like $35 annual membership, so really very, not very much. So that allows you to vote for the board members and get you a slight discount if you're going to all three shows, it's cheaper to be a member because you get a bit of a discount <laughs> for the shows. So that, there's that. So I think people join it for the discount rather than join it to contribute to the organization sometimes. So, uh, But they put on the shows and then um, different clubs support the shows. So people can either submit games as part of a club. So our club is putting on six games um, at this show. Or people can submit games individually. Uh, mm. They don't need to be part of a club. So it's it's really an overarching organization that uh, arranges a contract with the hotel, um, arranges contracts with the vendors. Um, I'm probably selling them short on it. They do a huge amount of work. Um, and from the outside, I'm not quite on the outside. I'm starting to do more for them now. Um, there's a huge amount of work that goes into all this, and it's all a volunteer yeah. organization. If somebody uh, are there other conventions outside of the HMGS framework, if you like? Oh, absolutely. Um, HMGS is really just the East Coast, so there's other organisations okay. in yeah. other areas. But also within the East Coast, there's other clubs that are big enough to put on their own right. one or two okay. day conventions, yeah. a mini convention. 
Um, there's a group called the Hawks down in um, Harvard de Grasse, which is south of here. I don't know exactly how far, but let's say 100 miles south of here. They put on a two-day convention called Barrage, give them a shout out there in the fall. There's other groups near New York who put their own things on. So, yeah, there are smaller conventions, but everyone seems to be drawn to these bigger conventions. So, uh, I've spoken to a few people who live in the States now um, and, uh, and in Canada as well, and there seems to be like a bit of a disconnect. Some people seem to live in areas where there's nobody else who games or maybe they haven't found somebody else who games, I think, more likely to be the case. Uh, and then there's some people who live in areas where they've got quite thriving clubs and wargaming shops. Um, is that based on population density, or is it more popular in certain areas? I'm, I'm sure there'll be exceptions, but I think predominantly it's population-based. I mean, the population in the US is very concentrated in, in certain areas, like the East Coast, you've got from Washington all the way up to Boston, where you've got um, even a bit further south there, you've got Atlanta, Washington, Philadelphia, New York, Boston. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the whole Chicago area, um, which is heavy. Um, you've got the whole Texas, Dallas, Houston, and then you've got the California area. So a lot of the pop probably missed out a really important population area, but those are I'll be writing in if you have, don't worry. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on from just kind of talking about the organization of the conventions itself to a more general aspect of, 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 of the games themselves. Um, so in the UK, um, you, I don't know if you're aware, we, we would have two kinds of games really we would have what we call a demonstration game where people would put on a big table and um, display the game and talk to the members of public without the members of public actually playing or we would have what we call a demo game where you would have one or two people running it and people joining in so that second model sounds very much like what you are talking about in the states do you do you have that display game as well are they do you have them at shows not so much at shows I've, i was aware that um some of the american war of independence games they sometimes or the civil war games they sometimes take to a museum and do a display mm. type thing there but at the convention it's uh, you know someone's going to point to an example where it's different but um at the conventions i go to it seems to be a hundred percent participation games okay yeah, I mean, there's there's one particular show in the UK called uh, Hammerhead that does that, um, and then the remainder are, are a mix of demo and uh, display games. So that then leads me into kind of the next area that I want to explore, and and that is with things being a demo game, um, what kind of emphasis is there on um, pre presentation? versus game ability so you can have an absolutely fantastic game on a piece of card three by three with handwritten squares on it um and you can have a really crap game on a 12 by six with the best painted figures in the world so um what from your sense of going to these things what what's the the drive is it to get the best looking games um or the best playable games or a mix of them the mix of the two well I think a good game for a convention, um, my friend Lou, who's part of our club, says it's got to be fast, fun, and give a flavour of the period. Yeah. 
those are the, the three things for me. There's there's a wide range of games. Um, there's some games that unfortunately a little tedious to play. <laughs> I've joined a couple of them. There's other ones that are good fun, but not the best terrain. Um, there's a complete range. Um, you know, there's some experienced GMs. Um, I'm not counting myself amongst those yet. I'd hope to be experienced eventually. Um, but there's a the wide range. I, I see some games where people just put down bits of masking tape or card for roads and, you know, a bit of blue felt for a river. Um, I'm going to certainly offend people by saying I, I think you need to make more of an effort at a convention, but yeah, some people are happy doing that and enjoy it and have players that are enjoying it. So who am I really to say they shouldn't do it? Um, there are awards at these conventions they're just trophies. There's no monetary award. Here. <laughs> Actually, I think they might give you $12 to spend at the dealer hall. Awesome. <laughs> um, but they they do awards, and they're looking for all sorts of things. They're looking for games that are good-looking. They're looking for games where people have fun or have done something different. You know. Yeah. Um, so they give what's called um, PELS, pour, pour enc- it's French, pour encouragement to l'outre, for, to encourage the others. And then they have uh, two other awards. They have Best of Show, mm. and they have Best of Theme. For each convention, they do a theme. I think it's the American War of Independence for this one. Um, but they they give these are the two really prestigious awards: Best mm. of Show and Best of Theme. So that's to encourage people to go above and beyond. From what you can see, does it make a difference? Then do people flock to those really nicely presented games? Um, or do they go for the playability? So they go to the table where everyone's laughing, or they, do they go to the table where everyone's going, "Ooh, that's amazing." I, I, I don't think they need to be two mutually exclusive categories. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I think the you want to have a if you put as a GM, you want to put on a game that's fun yeah. but also good looking. Um, I think pe- certain people flock to the games of the rule sets that they enjoy. Right? Yeah. You know, there's the um, People may like, I don't know, choose your rule set. Um, yeah. And they love playing those games and they always love playing the World War II games at that con. Or they'll play, always go to the naval games. That's their, that's what they do. Um, other people want to play in big games. Um, I, I think they do. But you don't always know what you're going to get when you sign up unless that GM has a history. So it's a bit of potluck sometimes. And that's part of the charm. Interesting. Um, is there? I've been talking to somebody in the UK about putting kind of an American style convention on, um, and it's got some interesting responses from uh, <laughs> uh, some of my large game friends, and uh, and I, I can see why because it's kind of it's, it's something entirely new. Um, so one of the questions that came out of that, which kind of you probably got more experience of is is there an expectation of people playing in a game that they've paid to play in um because you've paid that 35 pound for your convention you've signed up you, you know you're not joining a mates game and doing it for nothing so is there an expectation of entertainment uh, you know we're going all gladiator and say, are you entertained <laughs> well i think 
people see the $35 as a convention, as a convention entrance fee. They're getting access to the dealer hall. They're getting access to the flea market. They're getting the ability to sign up for Mm. multiple games. So I don't feel people are, I I don't hear that people are thinking they've paid $35 to join my game. Um, And I don't want that expectation because, you know, I want to be able to ask someone to leave the table. I hope I never, ever have to. Yeah. But I want that ability. I, and if someone had paid $50 to join my game, do I really have the right to, to send them away from the table? Um, I'm not doing it to make money. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want the expectation that they're going to have something of a certain level because no matter how well I do a game, get it running, how good my mm. figures are, how good the scenery is, um, Who's to say whether that meets their expectation? You know, I don't want them judging on that. I, I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you, we, during the course of um, the the conversation this evening, we've spoken about rule sets a couple of times, and uh, I, you've mentioned um, you, your friend's saying of of making it quick and enjoyable, and like the period that you're supposed to be playing. Um, but then you've also mentioned Harpoon Five, uh, so uh, which I think Sea. Are you, are you familiar with the set Sea Krieg? Yes. Um, yeah, I think I'm, I don't know where the, it would be a missile off to see which was the most complicated between those two. Um, well, Harpoon Five, you've got to understand the technology outside the rules before you as can well even as the rules. pick up the rules. So uh, <laughs> I'm actually planning a game for um, a future convention, but just for Harpoon Five players. And I will state that very clearly of the latest Chinese ships against the latest US ships. Wow, awesome. And awesome. Um, it's, I need people who know the rules. <laughs> it won't work yeah. otherwise. So you've kind of answered my question there, which was which was around the... Um, do people put games on with more complex rules with the expectation that people who know them will sign up? Rarely, I would say. Um, yeah. You want, so you're uh, going out on a limb with this harpoon one? Yeah, oh, I really am. It could fall completely <laughs> flat, but I'll have a good time. Um, but no, I would say um, you're probably familiar with Pike and Shot. As a rule I, I, set... I, I try not to be. Yeah. Um, and I got in. I got in trouble last week because somebody, somebody put a picture up and they got six hundred cavalry. Yeah. Um, and I said, "That's not pike and shot, is it? Really? Because you've got absolutely no pike whatsoever." <laughs> um, so it, it's it's more it's more of a armor and trot for a, a, as a set of rules. <laughs> Thankfully, they took it in the jest that I was giving it, which was to be, to be funny. Um, well, but yeah, but, I, I'm aware of the set of rules. I'm not a fan of them. Yeah. I'm- but you're not a fan of them because well, the reason why I am a fan of them is not because they've got all the intricacies that I would want for a personal game. It's because there is a general knowledge of those rules yes. in the marketplace. And for a convention where you're trying to teach people a set of rules and get people playing, I mean, I, I figure. I want people playing. I, I can describe the rules for five minutes. I want them playing within five minutes. Yes, yeah. For the next 30 minutes, I'll be answering questions. And then for the next three and a half hours, I expect them to be able to play. And Pike and Shot allows you to do that. It's a great set of rules for a convention setting. Yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, I'm fully aware of all the limitations of Pike and Shot, but I will defend them for for a convention game. Because in the rules, you can actually have... I do tables with the figures, boom, boom, boom. There's probably six figures for each unit, all very clear. And then there's what's called special rules, which means you can use them to differentiate between a Spanish pipe block with swordsman at the front and a lanchnet pipe block. And no one reads the special rules. You can put them down in a convention setting. No one is reading the special rules. People just want to get in and play. And a convention game, my experience of it, a participation game is it is absolutely exhausting mm. it's not like running a game at the club amongst friends you've got to make sure everyone's enjoying themselves you've got to make sure everyone's able to play and know the rules you've got to keep things moving um, you don't want people down one end of the table waiting for people the other end of the table to complete their move mm. um, it's absolutely exhausting and pike and shot allows you to at least get through four hours um, and everyone have fun. And really, it gives you a flavour of the period. Yeah. So, And um, um, do, do most games break down into those four-hour slots then, or, or would you run a, a game for a day or even, even longer if it was big enough? People have run a sequence of games, you know, the first mm. phase of the battle, second phase, different sessions, but that can be different people. I would say um, four hours is probably the vast over 80 percent of the games maybe even higher um because it is i mean i i put on a game one day um a polish game and then with a thousand figures then a bikoka the next day with 1600 figures that was that was crazy i will never do that again one game one convention and it's not just the physical effort of taking stuff and setting it up it's more the mental effort um, yeah. it's truly exhausting and unless you put on a participation game for 12 players you won't realise that and I've had people say well I could run it in the morning and then run it again in the afternoon I always say be sure you really want to do that yeah and and if, if you if you do that and you have those blocks do you leave is do you leave the game set up if you're going to run it say Friday morning Saturday afternoon Sunday morning would you or would you have to set up each time? The convention allows you to set um, leave it set up. Oh, um, brilliant. That's good I, I was always worried that things would go missing um, mm. if you weren't always at your table. Uh, those concerns have been totally unfounded. Uh, found everyone's been very respectful of the figures you've left on the table. So yeah, it's I'd, just not been, not, been, not been a worry. I, I, I have this uh, kind of picture of people sleeping under the table with a big halberd just in case somebody comes <laughs> to nick the figures overnight. But I guess you get more relaxed. After you've done it a few times, it ceases to be a worry. And I could probably get caught on that now. But yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we I've, I've done many shows over the years and, and um, there was um, a person uh, who used to go around and help themselves to figures. Um, who's no, but um, they were instantly recognisable and, and removed from the show very, very quickly. But that's the that's the one and only time I've ever known that. Yeah. Um, you know, I've I've had figures brushed off the table by people walking past and not realising that sort. Of, but that's just a. It's every day. Is it's a, it's an accident, yeah. and you you know you lock them in a cellar and not feed them for a week, and it, it, everyone's friends again. <laughs> 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 
so so your rule set is very much um uh, for the convention is very much based around that ability to to get people into it straight away well not always um I've actually did two games at the last convention on on the same table. Um, I did the uh, the Battle of Bilogzerksva, which is probably fifteen hundred Cossacks and Polish, and but the night before, that was using Pike and Shot, where I had probably twelve people playing. The night before, I um, did a battle that occurred the day before, which was more a skirmish battle. Mm. And I used a rule set that I absolutely love uh, by Fire and Sword. Yeah, these have been... I, I've not got them, but people who have played them um, and clearly, like yourself, uh, really, really like them. Well, if ever you try it, I'll send you the unit sheets because if you use the rule book, you have to find... To fire, hit him this page, then go and find somewhere else <laughs> the defense. Run. So I've tabulized this all out. And I wanted to play, it's a lot more detailed set of rules. So what I did, I just did it for four players, much smaller scale the night before. So people who wanted to try that rule set could try it and in a quieter, calmer thing, so we could work through some things. So I wouldn't use a complicated rule set for a, what I call a big game. But I do do use some more complicated ones. Like I'm doing this convention. You've seen the pictures, the modern Afghanistan. Yeah. Great rule set, force on force. Yeah. But not yeah. something I would want 20 people playing. Um, I'm just doing it, running it twice, four people just. Um, so I, I do enjoy the more nuanced rule sets. But I'd say you've got to tailor the rule set for what you're trying to achieve at the convention. So is uh, Fire and Sword, is that specifically for kind of Eastern European late Renaissance? It's for a very short period in Eastern Europe um, and very detailed. It's the deluge and just before that, the Cossack uprising. You know, probably selling them short as well. But um, but yeah, it's very much concentrated on the the tactics and the style of fighting there. Um, I, I, I absolutely love those sort of tightly... Um, package rules it, you, they really give a flavor of a, of a period um, of history rather than um, you know the the old 3000 BC to 1470 AD yeah, war games research group <laughs> pretty sure a few things have changed during that period of time but but yeah, yeah. that's just a, a personal process but I can see your, uh, your, your reasoning behind the, the choice of rules so coming on now to yourself then, and um, so just take us through then the process of um, Martin looks in a book one day and goes, oh, that looks brilliant, that does. I fancy doing that as a participation game through to getting the figures on the table. Where do you start? Where do you go? Yeah, read a bit about it um, and then get an order of battle and put that in an Excel spreadsheet. That's the, the first <laughs> stage. Spreadsheet. Get a spreadsheet. Um, and then I just start painting units. Um, and, you know, you you could always do... I'm looking at the moment, um, several years out, the Battle of the Catalonian Plains. Absolutely huge battle in 451. Romans against Huns with everyone. Everyone who was everyone turned up. Yeah. Uh, there's a scrap. Come on, let's go. And so I do the research and there's... 
I'll get into a huge amount of trouble here, but there's an author <laughs> that's written um, some books on the Catalonian plains, hmm. and he quotes um, an article, a, a book that was written in the time that talks about the battle, where the author support where the historical stuff supports his theory, he takes that but ignores all the other stuff. So <laughs> I like to go back beyond just someone's written a book about the battle and try and research stuff. Yeah. So and then I try and lay out a table. Um how I'm gonna lay this it's not always a long table. I've had T shaped tables and all sorts if it suits the battle. And then I look at um sometimes the what ifs because some battles just don't make good fights unless you have some what ifs. The the Battle of Bicoca is a, a terrible gaming battle if you don't have what ifs. The Swiss march up the table, they hit a, a trench that's forty foot high, and their pikes can't even reach the top, and they get shot like ducks in a barrel. Is that Spaniards cheating again, hiding behind it, things? It is. Um, yeah, yes. that's ruined the Italian wars and lasted. <laughs> but. Then you look at what happens if the French had come round side, what happens if the Venetians had managed to come through the marsh. And so then I'm creating a battle because I want the lose the side that lost to have at least a 30% chance of winning in my game. Oh good. Um because you don't want people people don't want to play a lost cause. Um, you know they don't want to join in a game and find they they know they're going to be massacred from the start and that's it. So, you know, there's some bending of history with what ifs to make a good scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I do, and then it's a, a matter of painting units, getting ready, and then the num the number one thing is play testing it because your scenario may just not work, <laughs> <laughs> and then you need to you don't want to find that out on game day at a convention. Yeah. So, and then I adjust the scenario. And then, then it's go time. Print out data sheets and and everything, and uh, I'm away. So with the with the figures, then um, are you painting all the figures, or are you buying painted figures in, or getting figures from friends? How do you organise that? No, I I wish that club did more projects, but I think so many people have been let down in the past. Where let's do this project, I'll paint this army, you paint that one, and they're left with a single army. Damn. So, so they've been burnt too many times. So um, I paint all my figures. Um, I think that also ensures some consistency in the look in the game. Um, all my figures, when I started, are some of the figures up to where I am today in terms of quality. No, they're not. Um, but and are the figures I'm painted today hopefully be where I'd be in a few years' time again? I don't know what you do about that. I don't want to repaint figures. No, it's you, you carry on with the ones that you've got, and, and um, regardless of how you perceive how much better the newer ones are, because you always think, you know, the 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 turpits that I painted last week, that's the best thing I've ever done until next week. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's loads of, you know, my Swiss, my 28mm Swiss pipe, that was the best thing that I did five years ago whenever I did it. Um, so... Your newer units might, in your in your mind, look better, but they don't have the history. You know, I can look at some of my units of gendarmes and regale tall tales of great deeds on the battlefield, um, whereas I can go, well, the the varnish on this one's a bit damp still. 
<laughs> well, I had a situation where um, for doing Ravina, which is a hundred figure launch net pipe, two hundred figure launch net pipe, but I already got two pipe blocks, one of foundry um, launch necks, and one. Then after I did that. I wanted another pipe block and the steel fish lunch next oh, come out. They are nice. They so are I painted nice. another hundred figure. So I've got two one hundred figure pipe blocks, which are all on individual bases. So now I'm needing a two hundred figure. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I could just combine these, but they wouldn't all be steel fist. So I go exactly. out and buy another hundred steel fist figures Brilliant. and paint them. Brilliant. We are, we are, there's definitely a, a, a characteristic to Monk's Wargamers that does that sort of thing. Without well, now I'm out. struggling because Steel Fist are looking at bringing out a range of Swiss, and I've got 350 Swiss already. Yeah. I, I don't think I'm going to be tempted, unfortunately. No, I'm, I, I'm quite looking forward to those because um, my Swiss are designed around Fornovo and, and the early parts of the wars, So, the, which is what Steel Fist are bringing out. Yeah. So, um, I can always do with another spike block, I suppose, at the end of the day. Yeah, uh, I mean, you reach that point, can you ever have enough Swiss? And um, I think I've got enough Swiss. <laughs> you're at that point. You're at yeah. the, 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 uh, the peak level of Swissness at the moment. <laughs> so what about terrain then? Uh, do, you, do, do you do all that yourself as well? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I think that's a, an equal part of the hobby for me. It's... Uh, I think that makes the table. Um, and again, an example, I did the Battle of Ravenna, um, or Ravenna, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but um, it's a very simple battlefield with just a line of field defences, and there's not much there. And I'm thinking, I ran the test game, it played very well. I'm thinking, yeah, but this doesn't, there's something missing. There's no spectacle here. I then decided to build the entire city of Ravenna. <laughs> <laughs> took no part in the battle yeah. but it sat there at the end of the table castle walls um got a beautiful manufacturer from croatia who produced yeah. them and um yeah they looked amazing they looked absolutely amazing yeah but that's sort of my way i've got to have the table looking right mm. um the other one uh the bikoka you know, I've seen people do Bicoca, and again, we'll probably get into trouble and get emails. You know, they've got a little wall where the Spanish standing behind. These guys came up against a 40 ditch foot ditch with gun emplacements built. You know, if they're going to be fighting over field defenses, make the field defenses worth fighting over. Mm-hmm. Um, so I built all those up, and um, and then there's the one end of the battlefield, there's a villa of Bicoca, and I've seen someone put a small little 15 millimeter building to represent. (laughs) I wasn't going to do that. I um, decided, again, I wanted it to look the part. So I got six buildings from Charlie Foxtrot and kit bashed them all to make one villa and then did um, the whole ornamental gardens. The actual villa and gardens took up four foot by two foot table space. Awesome. Brilliant. So that's sort of the way I am. And then I've got to have the civilians there. I've got to have... Um, wild boar in the forest. I've got to have wood piles. It's all those other things that I think they're, they're easy to do, and I think it just makes the look of the game. Yeah, and I I, I particularly like that sort of thing. And do you find that that for you brings the game to life? As a, it's not just moving toy soldiers around. You've got ducks in the pond and somebody chasing somebody around the town or whatever diorama you want to build in 
yeah I, I mean i love one of the things i did was um well i've got two stories one i put the there was a drainage ditch at bicoca and just putting the geese in there by some lily pads that was a joy <laughs> and then the other one more recently um the battle of battle of Villazerksva in the, the, the cossack uprising i was reading this book in translating to polish all the way up to the show and i got within two weeks of the show and i realized there was an apiary which is loads of beehives <laughs> yep. that took an important part in the battle I'm two weeks out from the show, and I think, I've got to have this. So I find three manufacturers who make apiaries, all in the UK. So I, I order it in the hope that one had arrived, and beekeepers as well. I managed to get all three delivered on time. Superb. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I've got them. I might as well put them on the table. So I was, up until the show, I was painting beekeepers and beehives. <laughs> Well, that's the sort of detail that I really, really enjoy in those in those bigger games. And um, do you find that as you play the game over the period of a convention, or I don't know if you if you take it to more than one convention, that do you change how it plays based on the experience of, of how you've run it before? Well, I never adjust a game because of die rolls. Yeah. It's, um, if it doesn't work because it doesn't work, I'll, I'll adjust it. But that's normally done in the play test. The other thing that the really strong piece of advice that I would give anyone doing a participation game, don't force your preconceived or historical outcome on the players. Let them play. Um, they'll do some stupid stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they'll do some really stupid stuff, but they'll also, <laughs> um, there'll be some tactical genius as well. Yeah. Um, one guy in the Battle of Bicoca, he was coming in with the Venetians, not a particularly strong army. He just took them into the gardens and drew in. What I was expecting, he drew in the Spanish arquebusiers just to, to fire and hold them up. The player on that side not only drew in four Spanish pike blocks, he drew in one of the 200-figure Lanschneck pike blocks and then the Swiss marching up the table, when they got to the walls, there was no one there left waiting for them. <laughs> I think sometimes you see that, don't you, that a player um, will get obsessed with a, with a certain thing on a battlefield. And, um, you know, most of my gaming has been like in a multiplayer large battle. And the number of times I've looked over and gone, well, Where's that lot going? And somebody's um, somebody's nicked the guard or something like that just to take a, a duck pond that's been annoying them all day. Yeah, and you don't want to stop it because both both people in that scenario still talk about that battle in the pub and what happened. Sure. If I'd have exactly. said, no, you've got to wait and receive the Swiss, that wouldn't have happened. And I also find in convention games, the better the troop that you give someone, the more they are cautious and do not want to commit it to battle. I gave someone the entire French gendarmerie and they would not move because they would suffer a casualty. It's like they painted the figures themselves. Oh, no, no. Yeah, you've got to get it scratched if it's if it's out on the table. Yeah. But I know what you mean talking about it because people will um, throw units of conscripts in or units of... Um, uh, sword and uh, spear and shield, early Italian infantry. I'll oh, throw that in. Not bothered about them. Throw them in, and then the one, the unit that is going to break through, your papal guard or whatever you're going to get. They they just sit there at the back, going, "Well, not going on today, is there really?" I've had um, 
I've had things like the Winged Hussars, someone march them on parade back and forth. <laughs> oh, no. I, that's, the, that's the one unit I've, I would... Um, I would love to own. I don't know what I'd do with them, but I would love to own a, a wing to Zai unit. Um, one of the guys, one of the guys who's been on uh, episode eleven, Stephen Wald from Australia. Um, he's just done a lovely unit of them. They're absolutely amazing. I don't know what he's going to do with them. Same as me, I, I'd probably just sit on a shelf forever. Yeah. At least you've well, gamed with them. And the, the thing is, people want wing tussars, but they're very. If you look at the ratio of the. Um, the Polish cavalry in that period. There was a lot of Polish-style Cossacks and mm. Pancherny. I've only got, I've probably got 200 cavalry or 300 cavalry from a Polish. I only got one unit of winged hussars. You can't really have any more, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't stop people, though, dude. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't really stop people. Um, so, um, Italian Wars, and we've got to have a quick five minutes on the Italian Wars. Um what what draws you to that period? I know what draws me to that period, but what draws you to it? Uh, it's it's obviously the pikes. Uh, mm. There's a combination of pikes and gendarmes. Yeah. Um, I mean, what better units other than perhaps the um, winged hussars? What better units other than pikes and gendarmes? Exactly. Exactly. There's nothing better. And then to put flags on those pike blocks... I, I, that big pipe block we're talking about and the Swiss pipe blocks, I've got 15, 20 flags on the pipe blocks. And you don't just put them in the front row. They're like two thirds of the way back. Like you see them in the pictures and you just that big row of flags. Um, yeah, it's incredible. And then you've got the, the whole architecture of the Italian buildings. And mm. then you've got cypress trees. That's the one thing for the Italian walls. You've got to have cypress trees lining your streets because <laughs> people say, that's Italy. Um, you can just set the scene. Um, and there's a lot of interesting battles as well. Yeah, and, and um, I always go on about this, but until the Spanish start hiding behind things, um, it's it's quite open warfare. Um, I mean, Four Novo, I've, I've done it as a display game and played it so many times. It's one of those that you have to tweak to make to get right, to make it playable. Yeah. Um, otherwise, the Italians just get absolutely smashed on the Fords and... and drown and float down the river so you know you need to bring it on a bit to make it to work as a battle um but they it's um it's kind of a rock paper scissors period uh i think where nothing is over powerful and there's something that will defeat whatever it is that you've got yeah um i think i've not found i've had to modify every set of rules that i've mm. done it because the one like pike and shot they Really, gendarmes charging pikes is just impossible in that set of rules. But they did it. Was it uh, Marignano where they, yeah. they they just got in? They kept on charging into them. So um, I think that's again what the book by Mario Trozzo he describes that it's when a pike block's not set that the cavalry can charge. They've got to have their pikes down and their foot behind the pikes. Then it's bad news for the cavalry. So you can fix a pipe block and stop, stop it moving. And to capture those subtleties, I've not really found a really good set of rules yet. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating period and one that looks amazing. And with those big units with the flags, um, you don't necessarily need to be the best painter in the world because you have the, that massive unit coming towards you and it just looks brilliant. 
you could probably you could probably get away. I know we said earlier on in the quiz that we wouldn't have unpainted figures on the table, but you could probably get away with ten or twenty figures in the middle of that block. Nah, you couldn't. Uh, just just sketch. <laughs> well, no, just sketched in, just sketched in with colours. Neither, never know. neither you, you nor I are going to do that. No, exactly. I mean, <laughs> I, I, my, my little trick is I like to, um, I like to put um, people in Bradford City football kits and put them in the middle of the, fi- <laughs> the middle of the pipe block and see if somebody sees them. Even you know, with the sponsorship on the, on the chest and everything, um, and then halfway through a game, somebody go, Ken, is that is that is that Bradford City kit in the middle? No, oh, you've spotted it. Well done. Well done. <laughs> now you've given that away. Now everyone's going to be looking. No, yeah, yeah. They'll be scouring the photographs now as we as we speak. <laughs> so your latest project then is the is the modern Afghan stuff. Um, I think you said yeah. force on force with the rules. Um, how are you going to run that? What's that game going to be about? Well, um, I, I did a British forward operating base, which has got. Um, mm. All the Hesco bags that they use, and, and that. The the thing with modern skirmish games is the range of the weapons is essentially unlimited, um, as far as gaming table. So you've got to have a lot of terrain. You've got to block the line of sight or provide cover. So that was the the genesis of that. Um, and then it started off as I just fancy doing a small project for Cold Wars, <laughs> and then it just grew and I kept on adding more and more stuff. Uh, yeah. I need that. I need that. And then stuff didn't arrive and I had stuff to paint. So I added, I'd got a drone kit, um, a big Reaper drone. Yeah. So I thought I've got a weekend free. <laughs> <laughs> we could fit, fit that into the game and um, it's just, just sort of um, grown and it's allowed me to spend a bit of time on the buildings and the terrain, mm. which I've enjoyed. And then, the other thing that's important there for me is the civilians. And we, there's some rules if the shot fires within two inches of a, a civilian in the line of shot, mm. then there's potential of casualties. So it's getting both players to think about that and not just, you can't always shoot just because you can see. Um, so it, it's it sort of intrigued me. And um, I tried a number of rule sets and uh, this one's just sort of stuck and captured because it allows if a unit's moving you to interrupt their movement or firing to suppress them and it's it's really a very good set of rules but you've got to take your time with it yeah the the, the pictures that you've put up on uh, on facebook it, it's uh, it's it's an amazing setup and you you've obviously spent a lot of time on it and we've we've kind of gone over this a little bit in the past but these there's lots of little vignettes in there. There's, there's. I mean, I was looking at like posters on the side of the wall, uh, walls of the buildings and stuff. Um, it, it's important to you, is it, to to bring it to an in inverted commas to life? Yeah, I I see so many Iraq games and Afghan modern games that just the entire board is sand coloured, and then you look at photos of an Afghan village or an Afghan town, and it's just colour. And I wanted to try and capture some of that. So I, I very much try and look at photos of stuff. Mm. Um, when I was doing the Italian Wars, looking at photos of the Italian countryside, just to see what I've missed. And, um, yeah, I, I'm just trying to capture the feel. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But um, that's what I try and do. Yeah, there, there are people I've heard of um, who go on holiday to Italy to check the 
game table that they're playing on is correct, you know, in terms of that sort of detail. Yeah. So I don't know any, I don't know who it is, but you know, you got a trip to Pavia arranged, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, um, we we've kind of we we normally go to Italy every once every couple of years, to be fair. Um, and uh, with my Garibaldi project, I was going to go to Mentana, which is just east of Rome. It's not that far out. Um, but yeah, Pavia and those sorts of places definitely need a a, a reconnaissance. Yeah. I think. Um, well, you, you can't right persuade way. me that a trip to Bicocca is worthwhile because that's all built up now. So. Oh, is it gone? Is it gone? Yeah. Well, I was I was talking to uh, Simon Miller, who's just done um, the fourth book in the Italian War series on Kerasol. Could be the right mm-hmm. pronunciation. I've no idea. Um, and he he says all that now is. Uh, basically the Italian version of Lidl. Um, So it's a bit of a shame, really, that all that's been been built over. Yeah, I actually use Google Maps quite a lot when devising games as well. Yeah. It's a useful tool. I've used them for um, our World War I um, Palestine games. Not Palestine. uh, World War I Mesopotamia games. And um, you can still see like the ghost of some of the trench lines in some of the places because wow. it's just middle of the desert near either Tigris or Euphrates um with and nobody's there anymore so it's yeah. just it's just it's just there so how long how long does it take you to get yourself into a position where you are on the table with something and are, and are you have you got little germs of ideas floating around your head that might come to fruition in three or four years' time? Well, everything I buy, I, I paint at some mm. point. I don't, I'm not, uh, I've got three three projects that uh, are coming up. Um, the Battle of the Catalonian Plains, but I don't want to do that short. Um, it's such a big battle and such an important battle. I want at least... At least two thousand, but in my mind, I'm thinking four thousand figures. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, um, so that's I've got some units that I can play a small game with, um, but that's I don't want to rush that project. Mm. Um, I really want to, and I've started this, but just got interrupted by Cold Wars. You've probably seen my Saxons. Yes, I've yeah. always wanted um, a Napoleonic army. You know, I played with Airfix Napoleonics and. I've never been able to achieve that. So this year I've promised myself to get at least a Saxon division done. Um, And that's for me. It's not necessarily for a convention game. You'll probably end up as a convention game, but um, that's one thing I want to do. Um, I'm into Harpoon 5 as I talk for a game there. Um, What else is going on? I've got a whole Ottoman army from the assault group that they were wow. having a Christmas sale. So that's uh, 800 figures Ottoman army. Um, that will go against the Italian war stuff. I can do a whole what if there, with Venetian battles. Um, and I'm sure I've got something else. <laughs> but normally I, half the joy is piecing together the army and buying the army. So um, I, I normally get them, base them, prime them. So then they're ready to, for me yeah. to... Sort so out. you've you've been oh. back it back in the hobby and doing stuff now six or seven years, haven't you? Yeah. Has yeah. there been a project that that just hasn't made it? Have you started it and it's gone? Well, that would be the um, um, the other one I'm doing is a micro armor project. The big oh yes, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, the only project that sputtered 
was due to my lack of painting skills was that Saxon project. And I, it was never intended that it would completely sputter out. I wanted to get back to it, and now I am back to it. Now, are they the best white uniforms ever? Um, <laughs> no, um, but I, I can live with the standard they are. But painting white uniforms with white sashes, um, it's not it's, easy. It's not easy. Uh, it's not- and yeah, when I started back into the hobby, that, that as a first unit to paint probably wasn't the best choice. And going to lunch next as, as my next attempt yeah, you've probably not wasn't done the that next. easy route, have you? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, everything I bought, I, I will paint. I've also got some forty millimeter Napoleonics that I want to paint at some point. Yeah. But once I get into, I'm planning for a convention. Then it becomes everything is is that until the convention. So I've got through the Afghanistan stuff now. I'm now going straight back to Napoleonics and probably giving myself a week's break before the con. And then as soon as the con's over, it's going to be painting Napoleonics. Yeah. Do you find yourself quite disciplined in, in that way? It sounds like you are. Uh, um, yeah. 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 Get, um, get into project. I mean, I, I have to say that I, so I, I am to a reasonable, I have very few failed projects. So there was the 10 mil Marburian that never happened that I've yeah. just started up again now. Um, but yeah, I, I tend to stick with stuff. And once I get to a thousand figures, that's when I start to stall. When I've got enough for a big game, it's like, mm, what do I need next? And then my eye flutters somewhere else. But so, such is a war game in life. Well, the other one I'm thinking of um, is I built the castle for Ravina. Um, yes, that's just amazing. amazing. There's got to be, I'm thinking the Crusades. Could be yep. repurposed that castle because yep. it's it's too too much work went into it for it to be a single game terrain yep. piece. So I do repurpose stuff for other battles. Brilliant. Well, that would be fantastic to see in the future. Um, I'd like to thank you very much for your time this evening. Great to get back into podcasting again. Lovely to speak to you as well. Um, is there a question you've got for me at the end? I occasionally um, get one. Yeah, I was going to ask, what's your view on plastic figures versus metal figures? Ooh, ooh, controversial. controversial. Um, It's a a good question. I could go for hours. No. Um, I I have, over recent years, got into kind of using the plastic figures for the hoi polloi, the you know the 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 bulk figures so if you look at one of my pipe blocks italian wars pipe blocks um about 50 to 60 percent of them will be plastic um perry's miniatures and of course they only do upright pike so they're all at the back and then i've bought metal at the front to kind of you know beef it beef it all up um and i've used a lot of plastic figures um for the Garibaldi project, American Civil War Perry stuff as well, um, just to bulk out numbers, really. Because it is, you know, as I explained earlier on, I think, you know, you're the same. You've got a reasonable amount of disposable income for the hobby. Um, but it can go a lot further if you dip into the plastics as well. Yeah. But then when you take into account um, your time putting together the plastic figures... Sometimes I just I can't be bothered. Yeah. Have you ever done that where you go, oh, no, metal? Uh, yeah. 
I, I don't go into plastics because I see all the work assembling them. And it's yeah. like 3D printing. People say you can save money getting into 3D printing. Mm. And I'm sort of saying, but does it help me get more figures? Because metals, all I've got to do is place an order. It's a five-minute yeah. job. If I've got a 3D print it, all that's doing is cutting into my painting time. And it's an, to me, it's an additional hobby. Uh, I've got friends who are into the 3D printing. Um, and I come from an engineering background as well. So it's not, I'm not afraid of the tech. Um, I just can't be bothered to, <laughs> yeah. you know, in my, in my mid fifties, I just can't be bothered to have another hobby. I'll, you know, I'll pay Alan and Michael Perry to cast me figures. Thank you very yeah. much. Yeah. It's, I'm like you, I come from an engineering background as well. Mm. And I'm confident I could 3d print if I wanted to, I just don't yeah. want to. Yeah, it's a it's another hobby that that we old people don't want. <laughs> Mind you, I will say about three D printing: going onto Etsy and yeah. buying buildings that pe- people have three D printed is a yeah. really convenient thing to do. Yeah, I I'm I'm toying with doing um, Narvik with the one seven hundred ships that I've got, so I will need quite a lot of one seven hundred buildings. So three um, D printing will be the way that I'll go with that uh, i've no idea what a house looks like in narvik i've watched a couple of narvik films on netflix recently to, <laughs> that's my uh, that's my uh research for that project well thank you once again martin um i'm sure we'll keep in touch via facebook and uh, hopefully meet up if you come over to the uk uh, thanks for your time and uh, i'm sure everyone will enjoy uh, listening to you talking about putting a big game on so uh, thanks very much martin Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'll say good night to everyone. Good night. Wow, two and a half hours. I didn't quite realise it was that long. Uh, I thought before I put this together that this was going to be a really short episode because uh, the time speaker to Martin passed quite quickly. Um and obviously, we just had a really good time and uh, enjoyed chatting with each other about our uh, mutual joy of the Italian wars and big games. And I hope that came across in the interview. I hope you enjoyed it uh, listening to as much as I did putting it together. So uh, check out Martin's um, website, uh, College of Kings. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And uh, keep an eye out for his stuff if you are visiting conventions in the United States. Thank you, Martin. Thanks once again for coming on the show and uh, bursting the podcast into life again, which is brilliant. Uh, That just leaves me to say that uh, I hope to be back in a couple of weeks' time. And uh, my guest for episode 40 uh, will be another one of my friends from north of Nottingham. Um, and it's going to be a chap called Steve Shan, and uh, I've known Steve for a very long time, since I first came to Leeds, and uh, Steve is uh, an author, he's done books about the Franco-Prussian War, he's done scenario books for World War II and Napoleonics, uh, a wide breadth of history that he's interested in. Uh, He's also uh, a painter, a professional painter, so there's lots of things that you can imagine Imagine I enjoy my painting, so there'll be lots of things for me and Steve to talk about in terms of technique, etc. And we can give you an insight into the life of a professional painter. So I hope you're going to enjoy that episode as much as you've enjoyed this. I hope you've enjoyed having 
the Yorkshire Gamer podcast in the background if you're driving to and from work. I know some of you do listen to it then when you're commuting or whether you're using this as a bit of a background for when you're painting. I'm so glad that you are on board and listening to these podcasts. Tell your friends all about them. Get yourself uh, subscribed on Podbean or on YouTube if you listen on the YouTube channel. It's great to have you on board and uh, the enthusiasm that you bring to me from your comments for these podcasts drives me on to do more and uh, i thank you for it so until next time see they